you know, when you launch a business, anyone out there who's launched a business will know what I'm talking about. Mm. There's no shortcut. There is no shortcut. Don't listen to these people on Instagram who are sitting on Dubai beach, drinking champagne on, the, on a boat and jumping into a green Lamborghini, coming off there with chicks everywhere. That doesn't happen. Mm. It doesn't happen. You have to be relentless. And I've been relentless all these years. I've also been obsessive. And I'm not addictive personality. Start off, didn't have a clue, and you just keep going. Mm. And I enjoy the journey, I enjoy the buzz. I enjoy the buzz of working it all out. Mm. Even now, launching the new businesses that we've done, again, didn't have a clue, but we work it all out. Yeah. I'm, I guess I'm addicted to, the, to our brands that we all are part of today. Mm. I've never worked for anyone. I don't think I could work for anyone. No, I don't think you could. Either. <laughs> no, I don't think I could. Uh, <laughs>
Um, so everything relates all the way back. There's alcohol involved everywhere, you know, whether it's pubs, whether it's uh, off licenses, then mum and dad get in the casino world, then they got in the pub world and the restaurant world within the, that. And, you know, my journey's gone on to into the nightclub world and the festival world. So mm-hmm. it's really quite weird looking back yeah. on your and life scene where, where you got that sort of... Uh, that buzz from, I guess. Looking back at that sort of period of your life, obviously young years, what what years were they that you were living in pubs? Um, I think from about the age of three. From the age of three? From the age of three. Oh. And, uh, you know, we're moving around in different pubs, living above in a two-bed flat above pubs. And there was a lot of noise. I grew up lots of mm. noise, you know. It I equate it, you've obviously we've spoken about this before, and I, I thought about it earlier before this podcast, is uh, imagine as I was growing up, and you can imagine this at home, in your front room every night, hundreds of people coming in and out, drunk, yeah. <laughs> possibly some dodgy people, doormen standing outside the door, and you're just exposed to that kind of thing all the time. Yeah, yeah. I was around adults the whole time. Yeah. I was seeing things. I learned my trade there. I learned, you know, you, you know, like now entrepreneurs, the coolest world, word going Back then, entrepreneur was Arthur Daly or, or, or Del Boy. Mm. And then it's sort of, as the 90s come on, it came into sort of Richard Branson and what have you. But, you know, I was seeing deals being done. I was learning, yeah. watching people. I knew that if some people walked in a room, I know what was happening. I, I, I sort of learned energy. Um, instinct. Instinct and energy and mannerisms and, and all these things that no one really knew about back back then. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it set me up nicely to... I guess the world that I'm in 40 years later and, and it gave me opportunities as well because I was seeing everyone earning money then and as a kid I, I was like oh my god I can earn money here there's thousands of people coming down to the River Thames going to dad's pub there was a nightclub next door there was an Indian restaurant next door there was a big boozer next door to that and it was just like oh my god I can earn a pound note here mm. and that's what really gave me a buzz as a young age earning money you know I was seeing you know I was seeing all friends living in nice houses and mum and dad cooking together and living this kind of lifestyle where my lifestyle was completely bonkers. You know, it was it was going to bed at midnight every night when the pub closes. It was it was just mad it was madness. And and you're seeing doorman, you're seeing, you know, I was hanging around with the doorman from the age of eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, all the way up, you know, seeing what's going on with the door. That was mm. like their shop window. Yeah. You know, um, bodybuilders, they were bouncers back in the day, wheeling and dealing and earning money. and Old school bouncers. Old school bouncers, yeah, there were no badges, no <laughs> yeah, SIA yeah. badges and what have you. So, you know, Dad was the first one to bring these to the to the pub world because mm. he needed to keep the riffraff out. You know, that's really, I guess, when I got into events at the age of 10, I suppose, looking back. Early doors events, yeah. Uh, did you, like, just sticking on the madness of it all uh, for the time being, did you embrace that at the time or did you see it as a problem when you were a kid? I embraced it. Fully? I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Every day was different. You're a thousand people coming through your pub. You don't know who was who, who was what. It was just cool people, mad people, gangsters, sports people, people in the day having nice lunch. And then it would turn into this nightclub. It would turn into a, a nightclub feeder pub for the nightclub next door. And it was just what. I just didn't know any different, if I'm honest with you. And, and it gave me great opportunities to see what was going on and going, you know, how can I earn money? Yeah, that was my next question is what what is it that made you motivated to make money why did you want to make money I just wanted the nice things in life mm. I wanted a I always dreamt of living in a house and that sounds really weird but yeah. I've never lived in, a, lived in a house 
I always dreamt of having quiet evenings where there wasn't a nightclub next door with banging music till two o'clock in the morning, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And my bedroom was literally a thin wall away from the nightclub. Yeah. You know, and the DJ's there on the mic going, come on, Eileen, everyone's stamping their feet and partying till two o'clock. You know, it just was, it was just non-stop. I loved the buzz. Every day I was, I was buzzing and meeting new people. And remember, when you're the kid of the, 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 the inn pub, the place to be in the south of London... Where everyone would go to, and your dad and mum were the only were the, were the the managers of that pub, and they were the main faces, and you were treated like you were treated really well and looked yeah. after by all the doormen in different different nightclubs around the town or whoever it may be. So, although you at the time embraced the the chaos or the the, the kind of madness around you, you had one eye on one day I want to be able to afford a quiet house and a, yeah. and a quiet life. Yeah, I just wanted that. I, I, even even I wanted. I know it sounds really silly now, but I just wanted carpet under my feet with stick carpet. Mm. I wanted silence. I wanted to cook. I wanted to cook with my mum and dad, or I wanted to cook with my wife as I was growing up. And all the things I kept seeing all the other kids having, yeah. I was like, I, I, I aspire to have that one mm. day. But all the other kids were aspiring my lifestyle, playing on the fruit machines, yeah. going behind the bar, pouring drinks, going eating bags and bags of crisps and meeting people and hanging around and seeing things you shouldn't see you know, police coming in and people getting arrested and things were happening and it was just constant. Mm. It was a constant buzz. and But it also brought toxicity with it as well. You know, because that toxicity, going back to energy and stuff, the energy what's downstairs in the pub, it does get brought upstairs into your house, yeah, into, or into your flat, you know. And um, yeah, growing up, I saw, you know, saw, I saw so many things. Mm. Yeah, they were really good times, Dan. Mm. Really good times. And it just inspired me to go, I want to earn money. Yeah. I want the nice things in life. I want to go out and buy the things that I want to buy at a young age. And that all started probably at the age of eight, nine, ten. And the nightclub next door, you know, I'd, it was a feeder club. So I knew people were in dad's pub from 7pm to 11pm. And then I would see people leave at 10 o'clock to go and queue to the club next door. Mm. You know, I would go to the manager every Saturday and get by 20 tickets for a pound. I'd bring those tickets back and sell them for two pound. But my tickets would get the, the people queue jump. Yeah. So everyone was winning. So going back to that young age, I was creating win-win situations, you know. So coming out with 20 quid as a as a young 10-year-old every Saturday for half an hour's work, going around the pub, going, who wants tickets for next door? Who wants tickets for next door? These tickets get you queue jump. And people would just, it, would buy. And then when I, there were more people wanting those tickets, I would take them up the back, back stairs of the fire exit of the nightclub, bang on the door, have a little code, and the head doorman would come in, open the back door, and I'd get another 20 quid for getting them in. And the head doorman would get 20 quid as well. And that's a lot of money back then, you know? VIP lane. And yeah, the yeah. Lane. And, you know, it was just all these ways to earn money. And it was mm. just, you know, I was going into clubs. You know, th that club back in the day was called Cinderella's. It held like 12, 13, 1,400 people. Mm. I was going into these clubs with the doorman. When they finished work at 11, I was going in with them. And on the VIP table was a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old. So you were years ahead of people who would averagely go, you know, the average person going into a club. Do you think that helped you get a kind of a, a quicker understanding of how that world works? And that's how, how you how you found it easier to get into that world? Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Looking back, it's like, God, I was I grew up in this world. Mm. But when I was going to clubs, I couldn't believe the buzz. People dancing and being happy and having fun. And I also understood that people had to pay to get into a club. Then I saw these massive queues and I was like, so all these people have got to pay the nightclub. Wow, if they're paying the nightclub, surely there's promoters out there earning money. And, you know, it's kind of looking at, 
looking at every angle, really. Yeah. When was the last time you went back to that Kingston pub? Uh, probably about, probably like 2015, maybe, like oh, seven really? okay. years ago. Yeah. Eight years ago or something. How much has it changed? Massively. Yeah, I, I was coincidentally I was I was there a few years ago before I realised uh, it's the one you grew up in and <laughs> it's a family pub, isn't it? Now it feels a bit chainy, more chainy. Yeah, it's all. Cha- I think it's all, when I went yeah. back, it massively changed. Yeah. You know, this was a this was a, a pub. It's a two floored pub where mm-hmm. Dad would have DJs on and and now it's it's all very chainy yeah. and it's all well to do. It seems and. It's even um, the basic things where every pub has changed, like the smoke-filled rooms. Yeah. The, the, I bet that permeated all your walls. Oh, God, it? all my clothes. Yeah. And you know, my bedroom was boiling hot because we had the pub kitchens below. They would shoot out all the hot air through the window. Yeah. And it would just it'd be like fish and chips or chili con carne and shepherd's pie and whatever, all coming through. So my sleep patterns as a kid were really all over the place, you know. And you turn up to school smelling of chip fat and fags. No, yeah, <laughs> probably, probably. But, you know, it's interesting when you sell the tickets to the club there and, and they would all come out of the nightclub. So I'd go to bed at 12 you know, every week, three days a week. I wouldn't go, be able to go to sleep because of the DJ and the music next door. Yeah. And then everyone would come out of the nightclub and it'd be raucous. And you'd, there'd be bottles smashed and there'd be people raucous and singing and whatever. So the sleep patterns were gone and... You know, I'd probably sleep between three and five o'clock because at three o'clock, the, we had guard dogs. We had two Alsatians and a, and a Doberman. We had guard dogs barking and barking and barking and that would wake you up. And then the drayman who would bring all the barrels of beer will arrive at 5 a.m. right outside the wind, well, bedroom window. And they'd be rolling down the streets waking you up. And that would the, wake up our, wake up our, uh, we had a cockatoo um, called Bubbles and we're all West Ham fans. Um... And yeah, this bubble uh, bubbles were saying, "I'm forever blowing bubbles." I'm forever blowing bubbles. It was sing that when it got woken up, and that would then wake up the pet monkey. You know, we had a pet monkey called Mitzi. Um, it was just madness. It was, and upstairs there was loads of budgerigards flying. It was a two bed flat above a pub, and Z- zoo slash pub. It was, it was, it was just. But that's what we knew, Dan. It was um, like looking back, people listen to this, think, "Oh, I'm mad up bringing those," but yeah. it was just the norm. Well, I think it was the norm. Well, <laughs> due to that, and obviously your, your mum and dad found success through hard work. Now, you were you were fortunate enough to get into private school, and you're now a self-confessed non-academic, I yeah. would say. Um, what were the benefits to you of being able to go to private school? It was very, it was the best thing they could do. It was amazing. They earned cash. They were pro- Their work ethic is unbelievable. They're proper mm. grafters. And working in a pub and living together above a pub is really difficult yeah. as a couple, husband and wife. And yeah, they gave me a great step up in life because they didn't want me hanging around the doors. They didn't want me being in this environment. So, they, you know, I was the only kid who would turn up. They sent me to a, a private school, a sporty private school, because I was I excelled at sport at school, you know, football yeah. and rugby and cricket, in my view, and squash. And that gave me a, a wonderful boost because it also opened me up to some lovely people and lovely families and that's when I really saw the family life, um, which was just beautiful. Mm. It really was going around to people's houses, and and then the kids always wanted to come back to our our, our pub environment. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. But it was kind of like a double life, Dan. Really, because you know I was earning money selling tickets every week, and in the back of the pub we had W H Smith, and I go skip diving, and my mate Chris would hold on to my ankles. I go in and get the big toys out and. Because there was thousands of people walking by, walk by trade, we set up a little stand and sell all these big toys, and you know, and again, that was bringing in money. I'd have a bum bag there and selling them, 
And it was just amazing that I was around people. And people for me, I just love people. I love characters. I love every walk of life. And, you know, that was at the back of the pub. In the pub, I was obviously selling the tickets for the club next door. And at the front of the pub, every Maybank holiday, I would set up a, um, a stall, a hot dog stall. Or an ice cream store. So I'd go to the cash and carry, buy a load of hot dogs and buns. I'd go to the cash and carry and buy loads of ice creams. And I'd be edging my bets on the weather. And if it was sunny, I'd sell all the ice creams. And if it wasn't sunny, I'd sell all the hot dogs. And, you know, and that was making me £600 (laughs) net profit as a 10-year-old every Maybank holiday. What were you spending this money on, Dodge? I was saving. You were just saving. I love saving. And then I would buy buy nice things, you know. But Mm. I was earning more... And I wasn't a big spender. I was just, I, in my mind, I wanted to have the nice things in life when I grow up, you know. And it was, it again, anything. I was just thinking of every angle. There was a, it was an Indian restaurant next door, but people would come out of the club and get the Indian restaurant. I'd go fishing, night fishing. I'd get like five or six fish and sell them each fish for a quid, which they'd put in their fish curry, no doubt, or whatever. <laughs> it was. Whatever fish it was, whether it's perch or bream or eel or whatever, it didn't matter. Hopefully, they're no longer serving. <laughs> no, I don't think they last very long. T- Thames fish. <laughs> Um, did, did you feel different to other kids at school? Did you did you feel at that point you were different to other kids? Yes, massively different background, different mindset, different mindset. It really was. Um, I knew I was different because I, I guess I was growing around adults the whole time, mm. you know. And it was lovely because I'd go to this private school. All the kids would turn up in mum and dad's posh cars and briefcases, or whatever. You, and there was me and dad. Dad was a bodybuilder back in the day and he would have the gold gym tracky pants and we had the two Alsatians and we'd walk to school every morning come rain shine snow a good half an hour walk and I'd have my West Ham rucksack on my back little cap and it was just it was magical times like me and dad are tight we're best mates mm. and they're they're amazing times that as a dad now that I, I cherish I mm. really do that to walk in my little boy at school and he was like the Pied Piper mm. he was a good looking man um he was he was a he was a tough man, um, and what we'd go to school and all the kids, you know, all the kids were like, oh "My God, what's what's going on?" All the parents were like, "What do you do for a living?" He's like, "I run a pub." <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. But all the all the mums loved him, mm. and then on the way back from school, he was like the Pied Piper because all the kids wanted to walk back with us, and Dad would drop them all off at the parents' houses yeah. on the way back. There was like fifteen, twenty kids w- walking with us, all singing, "We're forever blowing bubbles." Dad was teaching them songs and. They were, they were amazing times, Dan. Very different. Yeah. You know, I've got to say thank you to my mum and dad for putting me into private school mm. and giving me those sporting facilities because that's what really, that's what I shone in, you know, that sporting side of things. And it was amazing, really. The headmaster knew every term I'd go in there, the only kid would have 600 quid in his top pocket, <laughs> yeah. straight to the headmaster's office. Cash. And they go, there you go, cash. And I'm not sure that got put through the books back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Now, obviously, the pub life, I, I should imagine, gave you uh, a better understanding of the value of money compared to those kind of traditionally well-off kids that were there. I should imagine their mums and dads come from slightly different backgrounds, yeah. not running pubs. Yeah. And and you going in there and you already thinking about how am I going to make money? Yeah. Most kids aren't thinking about that at that age, are they? No. Again, that's a huge opportunity. When I went to school, all of a sudden I was like, I've got 400 kids here can I sell them? And that was my mentality. And it was creating win-win situations. What can I sell them? I want to earn a pound a man. You know, and that, that grew throughout all of my teens. Mm. But the money grew with it. You know, and then when it when I've really kind of hit, 
I guess sort of 16, I was, I was doing all sorts of like the stuff that kids do at school and selling panini stickers at 10 p.m. and earning money there and doing everything, haircuts. If people wanted a haircut at our school, we couldn't, couldn't have less than a grade two. Mm-hmm. I'd give them a grade naught and it's three quid a haircut and they could have tram lines and that's an extra quid. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it was, I was literally just saw like a, a pool of people and how I could create a win-win. And that grew as I got older throughout my teens. And I always remember a time when the money got really big for my age was when I found Timberland jumpers. Mm. You know, How old were you then? I was probably 15, 15 then. And I was earning good money all the time. You know, this pot of money was just building. And But that's really what, that was, the, that was the sort of, when I look back, that was the point I was like, oh my God. I was buying these Timberland jumpers for a tenner and I was selling for 30 quid. You know, there's 20 quid profit in each one and I'd be selling, you know, a thousand pound a week's worth. Yeah. And it was like, oh my God. And it kind of grew from there. It really did. And yeah. <laughs> Before we move on to the next stage of your life, uh, do you remember your first ever transaction? My first ever transaction? Yeah, the first time you sold something or made made a pound. Yeah, I do. That was the nightclubs, pound a man. That was your first foray. Was that the was nightclubs. my yeah? It oh. was, and that was a weekly thing. And I thought, and, and a twenty quid back then was an enormous amount of money. You know, I'd get the, uh, I'd get all the money, and I'd wrap it. It would get put into a, a I'd go to dad at the end of the night, and he'd give me a twenty quid note. Mm. And I felt, I felt like I was a multi-millionaire. I really did. But again, I was creating women's situations, and yeah. it was just in my blood. It really was, and you know, mum's entrepreneurial. Mm. You know, and, and so was dad and they were always looking at ways and I guess it was just, it was. But it was funny, I looked back at a photo the other day and there's a photo of me that mum and dad always had fancy dress parties in the pub and DJs and what have you. And there's a fancy, there's a photo of me dressed up as an entrepreneur. <laughs> like the old ones that they had watches in the inside pocket and yeah. they, put, they drew a moustache on me and a flat cap. And <laughs> so it was interesting, you know, looking back. You even dressed up as an yeah. entrepreneur. yeah. <laughs> Uh, now, again, for a young lad who didn't particularly take to education or, or like education, how and why did you get into university? <laughs> <laughs> well, I moved on to my, the senior school and um, I sort of was was good at sport. And one of the teachers there was like, you need to go to a sports university, which he went to, and it was called Loughborough, up in the Midlands. And again, dad was like, this is perfect. Get you out of the get you out of this whole lifestyle, because that's at the age. There is a tipping point. There's an age. Which route are you going to go down? Yeah, you know. And um, there was a there was a uh, a dad at the school because I didn't do A levels. Mm-hmm. I got five GCSEs, all C grade, and PE. I got A star. So I had no A levels. I did a B tech, which was just. A BTEC. A BTEC, <laughs> which was no exams again. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you had to go, I wanted to get into Loughborough, and it's like, you had to have like two A's and a B. I hadn't done exams for, God knows, you know, I just wasn't made for for, for sitting there revising and learning. I just didn't, it just, I just didn't, I just couldn't do it. I found it very difficult. Um, and he saw my leadership skills. I was captain of the sports teams, and, and he knew I was a leader of people, and, and I would empower people, make feel people good, uh, make people feel good about themselves, and and I would lead from the front, and he got me in on a scholarship. Wow! Yeah, and his name's John Anderson, Alex Anderson's dad, good mate of mine, Alex Anderson. John Anderson got me into Loughborough on a scholarship. How many other people got that kind of opportunity? Do you know? I don't, I don't think very many, mate. Mm. 
I don't think very many. And that gave me the opportunity, my eyes. I was like, where's Loughborough? Where's the Midlands? You know, I've been down here all, all my <laughs> yeah. life. <laughs> That's up north. Up isn't north, it? isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's a sports university. I went there and there was 12,000 people there and about 5,000 people on campus. And my eyes were just like, ka-ching. <laughs> How am I going to sell things to 12,000 people up here at uni? And that's what happened. And that's when it really, again, took off to a whole new level, Dan. More pound a man. It was more pound a man. It yeah. was. My mum always drilled into my head, pound a man. You know, she drilled many things into my head, as, as, as mum and dad did, you know. At this point, was rugby your main sport or were you dabbling in other sports? Rugby was my main sport at this yeah. point. It was football growing up and, you know, under 13s, Chelsea boys, trials and training with them. And um, and then as I got older, at my last year of school, I went to Wasps under 19s playing with them and then went to Loughborough. And then, yeah, it was all about it was all about rugby. I just wanted to play rugby and I did a... I did a, a sports science degree. I did not have a clue what was going on. <laughs> I do the sport, but not the science. Yeah, geez, honestly, <laughs> I was thrown. I was really thrown, but I was torn because it was like, I want to be in this place because I just saw all these people just were partying, fancy dress, boozing, this whole lifestyle. It was like a, a butlins on steroids. Mm -hmm. um, and my mind would not stop ticking. What were you flogging at uni? When my in my was <laughs> I flogging at uni? At uni, I knew it was a sports uni, so I, I would went to Blackbush Market and I found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Adidas yeah. hoodies, and out there you could go around the halls of residence, knock on doors and lay out all the hoodies, and it was thirty quid a pop, and I'd go around all the halls and, and it was just again it was unbelievable because people wanted I created something that people wanted again a win win situation, and that went on for the whole year. It was year two. And I saw an event in London, and it was called The Church on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. And it would start at midday and go till 4 p.m. And where there was entertainment on stage. And and I thought, my God, why don't I do that? And I was one of the main faces on campus up then. You know, if you're a rugby boy up, yeah. up then, you're one of the main faces. And I what was. Or what Americans would call a jock. A jock, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And, um, yeah, my events career started really took off when I was um, at uni. Just a bit more on the rugby side of things. How close did you come to making that your career? Was that ever in your mind? It was never in my mind, really. No. It returned professional in 96, 97. And um, back then I, 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 I did a rugby season in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. I did a world tour and I did six months in, in New Zealand. And I come back a different player. Um, and when I come back at Loughborough, it was Bob Dwyer, was at Leicester Tigers and... They said, "Come, come training." There's a picked a picked a few few boys, and we all went training. Um, and it, all of a sudden, I was training with my heroes, which was really surreal. Which ones? Martin Johnson, Neil Back, Sarevi, Lewis Moody, Joel Stransky. The li the list went on and on. Did well, you did you feel like you belonged there? I had imposter syndrome. If I'm being brutally honest, Dan, mm -hmm. I was a young kid there, and you're playing with grown men. And they didn't care what age you were. It was legalised violence on a pitch. Yeah, especially back then. Back then yeah. was, you know, it was, they were tough, tough men. And you were still, I was still a, I was still a young man. I was still a, you know, I was still like 19, 20. Mm. Um, but yeah, you do get imposter syndrome thinking, what am I doing here mingling with all this, these men, you know? And, um, but I had, the, I had the skills, I had the skills to blend in. Um, 
but I didn't have that extra bit that I knew you needed to take it to a whole new level to mm. play for England or, or, or play first team for Leicester Tigers and whatever. And they were like, went on to be European champions for years. And it was an amazing squad, a group of players. But, but World know, Cup winners as well. well that, loads that, of World yeah. Cup winners in there as well. You know, you soon realise where you are in the pecking order. But I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was a whole new world to me. And, you know, when you get given a car to drive around in and free stash and you're getting a couple of hundred quid a week or, you know, it was just, it was brilliant times. It really was. And um, I went on to do that for a few clubs and I, I loved it. I loved it. Do you think if you didn't have one eye on business and being obsessed with the entrepreneurship side of things, you would have pursued rugby? I knew how far I could get. Okay. Yeah, and it wasn't the level that the people who were around me were going, you know. And I also knew that I was earning a hell of a lot more money than these boys were. You were lucky enough to know that you knew what you could do outside of rugby. Yeah. It wasn't your world. No. like your, It wasn't your whole world. No, it wasn't the whole world. But to, to, to just get it over the line, to get given a car, you can drive around for a whole year. And get paid cash and get paid and get free stash, Adidas stash mm -hmm. and stuff, whoever they were sponsored by at the time. Were you selling it all? I was, in fact. <laughs> of, course <you> <laughs> of course, of course. And um, it was just in my blood. It was, in yeah. my, it really was. And, and at the time, it was interesting because I was all the boys around me were starting to play for England. It was like, oh my God, they're becoming big celebrities. Mm. And these were all friends of mine. Going back to, you mentioned you had in, in, imposter syndrome. Did you have that through private school and uni as well? 100%. Mm. 100%, Dan. I didn't know what imposter syndrome was back then. I just knew that in class, my default was to make people laugh. Because I just didn't get school. I just didn't get being in eight different subjects a day, from science to RE to maths to algebra. I knew that this wasn't going to play a part in my life, even at a young age, Dan. Yeah. So my, I guess my, my fallback really was taking the mickey and having a laugh and making people laugh and mucking about and that, and then staring out the classroom and not listening and just wanting to be on that sports field, playing sport, daydreaming, manifesting what I'm going to do later. And that's all I wanted to do. What do you think you took from sport that you'd now use in business leadership because on the sports field I was the captain's league going through the years and stuff mm -hmm. and I guess it, I guess leadership and empowering others and leading from the front and taking risks my mum always said to me take risks break the rules you know as a kid my mum would give me huge belief my dad would give me huge belief yeah you're good enough to do this believe in yourself I was always curious as a kid I was always asking loads of questions. I was that one who would answer, who would ask questions in the class where everyone was scared to ask. Excuse me, sir, what, what do you mean by that? Put my hand up. I was always that kid to do that mm -hmm. because I just didn't understand what they were trying to teach me. And I wanted it to be simplified. So I've just taken that to later life and just simplified business, created win-wins, asked lots of questions, be curious, you know. Simplified education. Simplified education, <laughs> yeah. you know, and um, I guess that's, that's been with me from a young, from a young boy. Did you find that the imposter syndrome bled into business as well, or did you feel comfortable and this was your place? A hundred percent comfortable okay. in business. One hundred the whole time in anything. 
in business, in creating ideas. You know, I've got a really creative mind. It's, it, I just knew that some of these teachers were just reading from a book, regurgitating stuff that I knew as a young kid because I had an older head on my shoulders. I was really streetwise and it was, I was just kind of staring through them thinking, this is going to do me no good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, makes sense. <laughs> well, um, I didn't. I hope it makes sense. It does you know? make sense. Yeah. It does. Like if, when you look at your your background and what you did throughout your childhood and your early teens and things like that, it makes sense that you'd look at that and go, "Well, what what good's this going to do me? Yeah. What good is this going to do me?" But nevertheless, you graduated, right? <laughs> That's a holding story. <laughs> yeah, I did graduate. How? <laughs> Can I say it on air? <laughs> <laughs> Share as much as you want. <laughs> so yeah, I ended up getting a two-two. Okay, and um, I was earning good money back at uni, and all the clever kids were getting getting paid nicely to do my coursework and stuff. Uh, <laughs> you had staff. <laughs> staff, yeah, uh, yeah. I ended up getting a two-two. It was really funny, in fact, because I still didn't even get the degree thing. Mm. I really didn't. Even on my degree day, degree. Graduation. Uh, graduation day, me and me and a mate Joel Calise, good friend of mine, we were out to the night before till four or five o'clock in the morning partying, and then the graduation. Dad come up, and mum come up, and my sister come up to celebrate the big day. I didn't even know I needed a, a suit jacket and a tie, you know. And and dad turned up, gave me suit jacket and tie, and I went on stage. And because my surname's Woodall, <laughs> it's funny, <laughs> surname's Woodall, Woodall, and um, went on stage. And people knew that I was doing the nightclub game back then. We haven't mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, yet, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. And uh, I went on stage on graduation and Woodall went up and there must have been about 500 people in the in the theatre hall. Um, and there was this massive cheer because everyone knew I was in the nightclub game then and travelling around the country throwing parties and stuff. They saw it was more, as a, more of an achievement for you. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Everyone knew. And I ended. I was really happy with the Desmond. Got a yeah. 2-2. Ticked a load of boxes. No one knew what universities were when I was growing up. No one, my, no one in my family thought about universities. And if you went to university back in the day, you would have to be some really super clever kid, and yeah. you were studying at Cambridge and Oxford. And, but all of a sudden, there was a sports university to go to, and and you got what you wanted out of it. Yeah, massively. Yeah, massively, Dan. Yeah. Um, and obviously, as you've mentioned, you spent a lot of your time at uni um, in the nightclub scene. How did that come about? <laughs> That come about, as a young kid, my mum always said, pound a man. Mm. When we went to uni, we were driving up, she going, pound a man, you've got 12,000 people up here. So in my mind, I was learning, I went to this sports university and you know, it's a, I got there and there's all of a sudden, there's this huge boozing culture, huge fancy dress culture. And everyone would go to the students' union or, 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 or a club. But back then, there was no entertainment going on. No one was flyering and postering. Um... And I went to the local night. I threw my first party in, what I told you earlier, on, on the Sunday between 12 and 4, packed it out, six quid a ticket. I was like, I think I don't know how much I come out with at the time. But when we finished there at four o'clock, I thought, why don't we go to a local nightclub? Take, you know, a thousand people there. And the local nightclub was closed. So I was ringing around to get the owner's number. Anyway, I got the club opened, packed a thousand people in there, come out for a thousand pounds, plus the party before. I was like, oh my God. I've got to get into the nightclub world and do this properly. So I went to that nightclub owner. He was all of a sudden earning a load of money on a Sunday night. Again, win-win. I was taking the door. They've taken the bar. And I went to that nightclub owner. I said, every single Wednesday night, you've got a thousand students in here. And you're charging two quid. 
How about at the start of next term on the, in the September, we charge three quid, I'll keep a quid, you keep two quid, and I'll pile more students in there and we'll get them in earlier drinking on your bars. And he agreed to it. I've got a pal of mine who knocks up a one-pager contract, done a deal. I got that club to 2,000 people every single week and I was taking my pound a man in my final year. Talk me through how. What marketing tools and tactics were you using? I used luminous posters <laughs> and flyers. Yeah. Tens of thousands of flyers. Tens of thousands of flyers that I'd go around all the halls, doors, underneath people's windscreens, flyer into hand, flyering outside other nightclubs on, uh, in other days of the week. Um, I knew everyone on camp. Well, I didn't know everyone on campus. I knew all the sports teams and the captains and the people in the halls of residence and the main key, key person of influences everywhere. And I'd look after them as my guests. They would have these silver solid cards that get them queue jump and free entry. But they would bring hundreds of people with them and we would just promote the backside out of it. Illuminous A2, A1 posters all put around campus, being chased around campus by security. Of course. Of course, that goes part and parcel of it. But I loved the buzz. In and out of hiding halls, putting it up. Because I knew everyone would come to the club and I'd get my pound a man. Mm. So I did that deal in the September 1999. And my best mate, Chris, we did a deal in a club in Wandsworth in London where we'd get all the Roehampton Surrey students into on a Tuesday night. So I'd have two clubs in my final year. I was coming out of three grand cash every single week. Wow. Yeah. Three grand cash for a student. For a student every single week. Wow. And I created a brand called Fill Your Boots. Weirdly, I can see the poster for that over your shoulder right it, now. Where is it? Uh, just oh my God, it's back there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so tell me about Fill Your Boots. What was all that about? Fill Your Boots, I just saw a wonderful opportunity that if there was a nightclub closed midweek, I would go to that nightclub and say, you're closed midweek, why don't we open and I'll pile a 1,000, 2,000 students in. Hmm. A win-win. The nightclub takes the bar money. I take the door money. Everyone's happy. The students were getting amazing entertainment put on by us. We'd have theme nights every week. We'd have live PAs. We would put on Big Brother characters. You know, back then, Big Brother, there's this thing called reality TV. There yeah. wasn't social media back then, Dan. It was reality TV. And we'd get Big Brother characters coming in. We'd pack out 1,500, 2,000 students. And we'd take all the door money. You know, three, four quid a pop. Mm. You know, it was really lucrative. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> Do you remember any of the names of the reality TV stars at the time? Oh, God, that's a question. Did you have Bubbles from Big we Brother? We had Bubble. We had <laughs> yeah, Bubble from yeah. Big Brother. Yeah, we had the other... Who's the, who's the girl who's... Um, Who's on Good Morning Britain every day, I think, or not Good Morning Alison. Alison, yeah, she would come. Yeah. There was loads of them. And yeah. they were literally, when we got them, we'd walk around like Birmingham or Manchester or London or with them. They got absolutely mobbed. Mm. Yeah, we just we just brought this new energy to scale the business up. After my final year of taking three grand a week cash, all I had my mind on was buying my first home. So when we finished that, I was like, I need to scale this up. Let's take it. So we had then the following year, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to go and get a job. There's an opportunity to become a student promoter mm. and scale this business up and see how big we could make it. How big did you make it? How many clubs did you have? <laughs> At peak, we had 12 nightclubs every week. Wow. From Manchester to Birmingham to Leicester to Oxford to Cambridge to Reading to London to Brighton to Bournemouth to Exeter 
to Guildford to Kent. The list just went on. Mm. But you couldn't be everywhere. It was me and my best mate Chris on a mobile phone. So we had to build teams of people in every city and town. And there was a lot of trust involved. And a lot of cash. Obviously, it was very cash-heavy back then still. Obviously, early 2000s. Obviously, yeah. card transactions <laughs> rocketed up in the later 2000s. Did you have any like ropey moments when it comes to, obviously, your bringing cash from venue to venue and things like that. Did you have any ropey moments with police or with... Well, it was... When you're... We had like three parties on a Monday, three on a Tuesday, three on a Wednesday, three on a Thursday. If I'm in London on a Monday, we've got a party in Manchester and Birmingham, I can't be in those venues. Mm. So it was really relying on the head doorman with a clicker. So I'd be in communication with every head doorman so I knew the clicker would marry up to the tills. I'd have a family member or a really tight friend on the tills taking the money. Um... I'd pay for the DJs. I'd pay for uh, a team of promoters to get flyers to hand, you know, 15, 20,000 flyers each week to hand, posters every single city. The posters would be A1 posters on boards with cable ties through them, and every board would get cable tied to to every lamppost in that city. So they knew you were, you know, you were coming into that city and, and kind of taking over and saying, we're here, mm. you know, and that... That takes, a, a, I guess, a certain character to not be afraid to go into other people's territory and and do that. But yeah, and you would go around collecting the cash, but you were on the road. You were staying in hotels, so you were thinking, where do I keep the cash? You know, yeah, there was there was lots going on. Yeah, there really was. Because <laughs> I, I think I was speaking to you the other day. Did you ever have any problems with police or anything like that with it pulling you over and you've got cash in your bags they're thinking you're up to no good yeah yes <laughs> but you're you know i never drank at any of the any of the events we put on you know so it, when you're driving back from nightclubs at two three four in the morning going yeah. to a hotel or driving back to london or wherever you may be you know i was based in clapham back then and um clapham brixton bought my first place in brixton so you, you were driving back and there was a time when they, they pulled over and said can we Excuse me, sir, can you pull over? And, like, oh, oh no, here we go. But, you know, but you, you get out and you're, you're super polite and they open up your boot and they see a lot of money in there. You explain. They understand because there wasn't credit cards back then. There wasn't mm. cards and whatever. It was just a cash society. It would be a bit more dodgy if they found you now, Oh, it? God, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But there's no cash anymore <laughs> yeah. these days, is there? It's all, it's all through cards and whatever. But they were really good times, Dan. Really good times. And, I was, and, and all of a sudden, we were hitting the jackpot in this, in this world and it was about growing the business and the growing the brand and the brand were really important to me. They were like my diamond. You know, I'd protect it, I would I'd polish it, I would it was it was the brand was key to me and it was the dot com boom when we websites started to come about. Mm-hmm. You know, and all of a sudden I was create a brand called popyacherry.com. Popyacherry.com. Yeah. And I got the idea of you know, when I went to Ibiza as a 17-year-old and I was going into Pasha and Amnesia and that really stemmed my 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 nightclub enthusiasm, I guess, you know, when I was inspired in Ibiza. So when I came back, I thought, you know what, we create a student brand called poppycherry.com, use the Pasha logos, tweak them a little bit um, and going into nightclubs and you'd kit the whole club out with drapes and these big, huge glitter cherries with poppycherry.com and you'd drive everyone into the dot-com. Mm. You know, and that all of a sudden, when you're flyer and poster in, now you've got a dot com, people will go to your website. We would take photos of everyone in the club. And I had a real geeky friend of mine who I knew, and he was creating this, I guess they call it an app today. Um, and he would create this thing. He created this app, I guess, that went on our website that we could download our photos 
onto the website would drive all the traffic the next day when people would wake up and want to go and see their photos that were taken from the night before. Yeah. Um, and that was genius for us. That was amazing because it got all this traffic going back to a, to a thing called a website that no one knew about. And I guess today that's probably Facebook is the, is the, is the equivalent. Probably, yeah. Facebook, you know? Instagram, TikTok, yeah. that sort yeah. of thing. During this time, you said it was good times. Did you always think this is going to be me forever now? This is this is this is my work. Yeah, I did. You did. I did. Yeah, because I was at that age where it was student nights, where eighteen to twenty-one year old students were coming in. I was probably at the time maybe a couple of years older than them, mm. and it was like, oh god, I can see myself doing this for life because there was a constant influx of students coming in. Third years would leave, the freshers would come in. You'd promote to the freshers in September, and October, November, and December, and if you knew you had it off in those four to six weeks. You'd have them for the whole year, that 32-week calendar year. Um, and I genuinely thought I would do this for the rest of my life. And But, you know. What changed? As a 40-year-old now looking back, you know that th good things don't always last. What was it then that changed your mind? It was a lot of travelling, Dan. Yeah. You know, it's 30,000 miles a year up and down the motorways. I was in my 20s. So I'd go to clubs Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday as my work. Never touch a drop, bang on the ball, had to be. And then come Friday, back in Clapham, where you were in an area where it was really party and real fun. I was partying Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Like a busman's holiday. Yeah. So we actually look back for that 10-year that period in the nightclubs. I was in nightclubs seven days a week, mm. you know, partying and having fun in your 20s. And, um, and they were great times. Absolutely great times, but there was a there was a period. Going back to your question there, Dan, there was a period. Well, I I've always had this good gut feeling with things. You know, mum and dad always taught me go with your gut feeling. You know, there's you know there's that feeling when you just know when something's not right. There's also that feeling you know when something is right. Mm -hmm. And I think it was about two thousand six, two thousand seven. I must have been eight or nine years into the club world. Um, created different brands. I had BubbleLove.com. I had Poppy Cherry. We created Poptastic. We created uh, the London Student Ball, which we put on at Ministry of Sound. You know, that was on A-level. That was on the results of the A-level day. September, it was August the 17th, year 2000. We threw a massive party in Ministry of Sound, which was the flagship country of the world at that time. Yeah. Yeah, there's loads of crazy stories. I know we've spoken about them in different episodes and stuff and... Yeah, I kind of always had this gut feeling, Dan. And, and back in 2006, 7 and 8, th th there, was a, there was a smoking ban coming in. Mm. Back then, people would smoke in the, in the clubs and there was a smoking ban coming in and it was like, you couldn't smoke in clubs now, you had to go outside a club, whether it was snowing or raining or freezing. People would go out inside and have a cigarette, which created a different vibe and a different experience for the customer. And then there was the late license coming in. And these late licenses meant that all your feeder bars in whatever city or town you were in, where all the students were drinking from 7pm to 11, they'd come out of the bars normally and you'd be on the streets getting them with flyers and giving them a quick 10-seconder. Come to our club, we've got this tonight. That You're going to love it. Look at the queues of this one. And it was constant selling to different people and, and, and letting people know the benefits of why go to this club instead of that club up the road or, or don't go bother going home. And... You know, I, I also look back now and go, flyering is the most un underrated business skill there is out there. Flyering to hand and having that 10-second conversation with as many people as possible, that taught me a huge amount. It's like an elevator pitch, isn't it? It's you, an elevator you, pitch in 10 yeah, seconds. Because yeah. I know each person was going to be paying me three or four quid to come in. Mm. 
So you knew you had to have your bet. You knew you had to be bang on the ball, and you knew you had to train teams of people, teams of ten uh, promoters in each city on how to be fly to hand, look people in the eye. Don't let them just walk past you, and you know, and have that convo, and 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 see if you can get them to stop for a couple of seconds, and chat to them, smile, and be that bubbly character. And that's kind of what we did for ten years. And that started to change when people weren't all en masse coming out of these that's feeder right. pubs. That's they, right. they were dripping out. Yeah, they were dripping out because the late licensed bars were going, hold on a minute, why are they leaving our bar? We can keep our bar open till two o'clock now, put a little dance floor in there, and we can hold them. Mm. And I started seeing different things, and my gut was telling me, Dodge, this, this might be the time to get out of this nightclub world. I remember that change as a punter, thinking this is really, like, dragged something away from the nightclub yeah, scene. Yeah, it did. It, it really had changed it quite a bit. It did. And I got out at the right time, Dan. I yeah. really did. Um, it felt it felt the perfect timing, and and also those latter years, I didn't want to be leaving home at eight p.m. when it's raining and cold in November and December and January, and February, whatever it was. I've got to drive to a nightclub. Mm. Make sure we pack out the nightclub. Make sure you're looking after people in the VIP queue. Making sure everyone's getting looked after, whether it's the head doorman, whether it's the manager, and and once everyone was in the club and all the entertainment were on, and you were making sure the DJ's music was right. And, you know, it was very, it was it was a time I was thinking, you know what, I just want a normal life. Mm. I always said as a kid, I wanted a normal life. And you went straight into the nightclub scene. And I went scene. straight into the nightclub <laughs> scene, you know, and it wasn't a normal life. It was a get to bed at three or four in the morning and wake up at midday. I was just pining for a family lifestyle. <laughs> You know, coming into my 30s. And is this when Fleur came into your life? Yeah. Uh, she came into my life in 2003, in fact. Okay. Yeah. A bit earlier. Yeah, a bit earlier, yeah. And obviously, so you guys rekindle or re-mess up, I think. Were you clubbing or how did you meet? Yeah, funny that. We were on a bank <laughs> holiday. Yeah, it was a bank holiday. I think I'd been partying the night before and me and a few, we, a few boys went down to... We used to go to Purple Nightclub. And it was underneath Stamford Bridge Chelsea Football Club. And that yeah. was like our stomping ground for years. Everyone would go there from Fulham, Clapham, Brixton would all go there. And and it was a, on a bank holiday August weekend. And we met in a pub called Sloney Pony Pub, the White Horse and, in Parsons Green. And we knew each other from Loughborough years ago, but we never, you know, I was going out with some, she was going out with some. Yeah. And, it, and, and it just... I fell madly in love as soon as I saw her. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Obviously, we'll, we'll speak more about Fleur a yeah. little bit later, but just we're still in your nightclub years. You're thinking about stepping out. Did you have a plan? What did you do with your brands that you had? There wasn't really a plan. I moved to Bournemouth in 2005 with my wife, Fleur. She worked for JP Morgan in the city. You know, she's a girl from Wales, and all of a sudden she's working in this city life. She didn't like it. And she would do a day a week down here in Bournemouth for JP Morgan and was just like, oh, I want to be by the beach, I want fresh air, I want to get out of London. I was like, I'm ready to get out of London, I've been here all my life. Mm. So she said, well, what, let's move to Bournemouth. I was like, I'm in. I've got a clue where it is, I know it's on the coast somewhere, but I'm in. Simple yeah, as that. Simple as that. And then we just <laughs> packed up and just before that I was living in Chelsea Harbour with my best mate, Sam. And um, the time was right. We live in this wonderful apartment at the time, looking over, looking over the River Thames, and the time was right to get out you know, for me. What did happen to your old brands that you had? Did you just let them fall over? Did you pass them on? No, I didn't pass them on. It's very difficult because you can't sell, you can't really sell. A brand. I kept the brands on for a while, in fact, yeah. until I stopped the nightclub world. But you, you can't really sell it on unless you've got, you know, a contract, and mm. someone's going to have to pay big money for a contract. It was very. 
it was a new world to people. There wasn't any promoters. We were like the loose. pioneer. We were the pioneer yeah. of that promoting world around that time in, in the UK for that student night. Um, someone could pay you that 32 weeks times your, your money you take on the door, but someone would have to have deep pockets to go and do that. And um, come down to Bournemouth and it was a whole new world. I didn't, didn't know anyone here down and I loved it. Because mm. when you're in that London lifestyle, you jump from a club to another club and get in a cab from East London to North London and having, you know, getting invited to all these places and partying. And did, and I was ready just to go, oh, let's breathe, slow down. So you're now in Newtown. Yeah. Kind of leaving the industry that you've been in for a number of years. No no particular plan. Yeah. What, what happened next? I had an amazing 10 years with my best mate, Chris. Grew up with him from the age of four. We're best mates today still. 40 years on and we did the nightclub well together I moved to Bournemouth and it was I was with a mate of mine Finchie and we were sitting on the beach one day and he was like Dodge you're well connected in the rugby world all your mates are playing for England a good promoter why don't we create a sport and music festival and that's where Bournemouth Sevens was born in 2008 and um, yeah, we were bouncing the idea around and I took it on and just went for it. Did you think you were ready to put on a festival or did you know, right, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm going to make it happen? I've never knew what I was doing throughout all my life, Dan. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Uh, um, but like my mum and dad gave me that belief, you can do it. If you believe and you dream, if you dream that you can do it, you can do it. And I had that since a young little one and nothing changed. And it was like, you know, I went to Dubai Sevens and saw what they did there. And I was like, wow. And then my 10 years of throwing parties and being able to market to people and create brands and have that creative mind mixed in with all the contacts I had with the England rugby boys. It was kind of like a match made in heaven, really. Mm. How can I put all these people from around the UK and flying them from different countries into one big field? And that's where the Bournemouth Sevens was born in... 2008 but like everything Dan I didn't have a clue I just did it so what did it take to get Bournemouth Sevens off the ground not not just financially we, we know that obviously there must have been huge financial pressures and we'll obviously touch on that but but mentally what what toll did it take and how mentally strong did you have to be to just be so determined to get it over the line well I grew up with a really strong mind from mum and dad mm -hmm. a really strong mindset that everything's possible and when I got to when I got to this festival, I didn't know what I was letting myself in for because it was a transition period. I was a promoter of nightclub. You turn up to a nightclub, the security there, the booze is there, the lighting sounds and sound systems there, the toilets are there, everything's there. All I'm good at is bringing people there, mm -hmm. taking my money, making sure I've had a brilliant time and a great experience, and leaving and then driving back next week. Thumbs up to the manager, thumbs up to the owners. Everyone happy? Yep, brilliant. See you all next week. All of a sudden. I was like, I'm going to do a sport music festival. If I get a load of sevens rugby teams there and I can create a party in a field, I could have something here. But little did I know what I was letting myself in for. And and basically at this point, obviously, you're you're going it alone. Yeah. Didn't yeah. have any staff to speak no of. No staff. You and Fleur? Uh, Fleur gave up her job at JP Morgan to come on board because she knew how snowed and how much this snowball was spiraling out of control and we were spending money and it was interesting because 
our festival is always the Maybank holiday, mm. the Maybank holiday. And looking back, 30 odd years ago, as a young kid, it was all about the Maybank holiday. It was all about the sunshine. It's all about selling tickets to this festival. Yeah. And we ran out of money six months prior to the event. You know, I didn't realise that you had to pay marquee companies, flooring companies, showers, toilets, fencing, security, police. The list just goes on, fire. The list just goes on, council, hiring of the venue. It just went on and on and on. I did not know what I was letting myself in for. And then the crash happened in 2008. And that excited me. Most people curl up in a ball and put their hands, you know, and just hide. I was like, I think this is a huge opportunity. But little did I know that no banks were loaning money. And when I ran out of, when there was, it was in January before, six months before, run out of the money. Everyone wanted their money up front because I had no track record. I was going to be, yeah, but I've been promoted for 10 years. They were like, you've got no track record of putting on festivals. Mm. We want the money up front or we're not turning up. We're not going to be paid after. So I remember writing checks, Flo writing checks, and we're like, we've run out of money. What do you do? There's no one to go to. Can't go to the banks. Only option, having to have that conversation, sit down with your wife and say, we'll either walk away from these 100, 100 grand that we've already put down, or we've re we have to remortgage the house because we need 300 grand. How did that conversation go? <laughs> it was a real honest conversation, looking each other in the eyes and going, we ain't going to walk away from that money. And we just went for it. I had no doubt. I had my wife fully back me. You know, she's a girl from Wales, grew up in beautiful countryside with no pressures and stresses and life's all nice. And then she's about to marry a promoter and a festival goer and a nightclub, you know, and we're total opposites from the spectrums, but we get on so well. Mm. And, and she was that one person backing you at this point, I tell you. Obviously, friends and family and stuff, kind of, I should imagine. Were they, were they reticent about it, or were they they fully behind you? People thought I was ballsy. People thought I was a lunatic. People yeah. thought I was mad. They're like, what are you doing? Hmm. But they also thought that 10 years before, prior before doing the nightclub thing. And But this was really silly. Yeah. You know, and I've got 15 years of being a festival owner today, so I can look back, but... Anyone listening, please do not remortgage your house on a risk of throwing a big party in a field. It could have easily gone the other way, couldn't it? One hundred percent. And if it had gone the other way, I wouldn't be sitting here now having this conversation, mm. and I would have lost our family house. So pressure was on to make it work, and how do you make it work? But looking back at your marketing tactics, how much had your tactics changed for this compared to to the nightclub days? Were they an evolution, or were they? Copy and paste. Copy and paste, forward slash, evolution of the marketing world. So it was all about flyers and posters around the UK. Flyering everywhere, postering every lamppost, doing what we had to do to let people know about this new sport and music festival called Bournemouth Sevens. There was, there was many music festivals back then. You're Reading, your Leeds, your Glastonbury's, etc. V Festival, uh, Best of All. The list went on, but there's no sport and music, and that was what I was seeing as a unique opportunity. Um, and it was flyering and postering. But back then, I took another bit of a, a, a ballsy risk. I, I, when creating the Bournemouth Sevens brand, I thought, how can I create the Sevens and turn it into like a Superman 
you know the Superman logo of the years. How can I tr create the sevens into a Superman within a rugby ball? Saying Bournemouth sevens. Anyway, I've got my designer um, James Golding from Southampton, lovely fellow, and he designed this most amazing design. But the sevens was looked like a Superman, and we put it all over Ticketmaster, selling tickets for this. That took ages. That's another story. <laughs> And then we fly it everywhere. I'll take teams of people from Bournemouth Uni in cars, four load, truckloads of cars going up, all the girls dressed up as superwomen outfits with the boob tubes and the, the cape and what have you. And all the boys would be wearing the tight Superman stuff with the cape. And I'll take 80-odd thousand flyers up because I knew the capacity was 82,000 at Twickenham. And we'd go up there and we'd be in the main car parks flying all the cars and where everyone's partying and drinking, flying everyone and being chased by the security, Twickenham security, hiding in the toilets, hiding behind cars and the security would go and go flying everyone again. It was like a, a proper proper good bit of fun and, and it was like a Benny Hill. You know, like... <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's what it was and that's how we got the word out. Um... And I also, I also knew that by doing what we did, by using the Superman logo, that potentially I could get into trouble by Warner Brothers, probably the biggest company in the world. And you did. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, we did. Um, that was just another bit of pressure on the plate in the first year. Mm. There were so many stories, Dan. As you know, you, you know most of the stories. I know they're in other episodes and gone onto other people's podcasts and stuff. But yeah, that was. Uh, I've never had my heart sink before, and that was the first time my heart sunk because we didn't have an office. We're working out of our garage. We had no staff, and I remember. And our and our office at the time was registered at our home. Mm. And I remember coming in once, absolutely shattered, after flying different cities and whatever. You come in, and I saw this envelope on the floor, the big envelope, and I just saw this massive, big gold shiny stamped on the right top top right. It just said Warner Brothers. I was like, oh shit, here we go. And I opened it up, and it was a lawyer's letter. When about in the, the build-up to the festival was this? Do you remember what month it was? Or This was around the time of running out of money. Okay. So there was that conversation. Maybe six months before. Yeah, six months like before. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you're heavily into the process. Of, yeah, hugely. Yeah, yeah. And heavily spent money on hundreds of thousand flyers and posters and all over Ticketmaster. And I remember seeing that letter and I was literally, I was, I was like, oh shit, I'm in proper trouble here. So I just, picked up the phone, spoke to the lawyer and just acted naive and apologetic and was just really nice. And I was his, his quote was, his words were to me, God, you must be some promoter if Warner Brothers have found out about this. Mm. And that gave me a little spring in my step. <laughs> Weirdly. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, I'm doing the right thing. I yeah, I'm doing to, the right thing. Exactly. Tweak. Exactly. So <laughs> I remember scrambling around that night, back to my designer again in Southampton, James. We tweaked the logo. I had to send him the logo. He said, I've got to go and burn all the flyers and posters. I've got to show him everything that I will never use this again. Da, 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 da. And it went back and forward a few letters and from my lawyer to his. And we just nipped it in the bud and we, we all moved on. But that gave me a huge stepping stone, Dan, because people around the country were talking about this. Mm -hmm. And it was one of my best ever moves. And did you have a gauge of how well your promotion was going? Uh, did you, Obviously, you didn't have online ticket sales at this point. I had no idea how many people were going to turn up to the festival. I had no idea. 
And were they just paying on the door or yeah. no one paying beforehand? They were all? people writing checks. So if you're a team, yeah. so I was like, right, I need to have Rugby Sevens teams. I was thinking I was going to get 24 teams. Mm-hmm. In year one, we got 96 teams. And because that uh, the registra- the registration of our company, these checks were being sent to our house. I was like, one day I got four checks, opened them up. There were checks for, I think it was, I can't remember how much it was back then. It was only like 120 quid or something to enter a team. I was getting these checks coming through three one day, five the next day, nine the next. I was like, oh my God, I'm onto something here. I remember scrambling around going, I don't know how to organise a tournament. I just want to throw a big party in the field, you know. So I went to the National School Sevens, which was massive, been running for years. Found out who the top man was, Peter Tanner, and got in contact and said, can you come and run this tournament for me? And he did, he agreed. Um, Yeah, and that's how it began, Dan. And uh, I met a really good girl called Sophie Christie, who worked at our gym and she was a netballer. And uh, she saw the amount of pressure I was under. And um, we both agreed on something and she came come on board. So you had a general idea that people were turning up. They were going to turn up. Or at least they'd paid to. They'd they paid the teams, the, yeah, the teams, exactly. the squad. So if they were yeah. in, they might be from Cardiff, they might be from Edinburgh, they might be from Birmingham or Leicester. They're coming down as a squad of 12. Mm-hmm. You know, So I knew I had like a thousand people there. But a thousand people ain't going to pay for a, a 300,000 pound year one festival yeah and that's what it cost in year one and that first year did you still have the element of yes teams are coming but i'm open up to the public and they can pay a fee to come to the festival yes. element yeah but you and were you selling tickets ahead of time for them as well we were going around then trying to sell tickets for cash with ticket sellers mm. locally so in the bournemouth and pool area but local people who weren't into sport would go, I'm not going to that. It's a sports yeah, event, isn't it? It's a sports song. festival. It's a seven song. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to that. Little did they know that I know I just throw a really good party. So you were trying to beat the mindset of the locals going, no, I'm not going to that. It's just a sporting event, isn't it? Um, and But I knew it was going to take time to really win over. But people had to go there and experience it because I knew I was good at creating a buzz. I knew I was good at creating a good party and a good experience for people. And um, something landed on my lap, Dan. After everything that I went through, all the pressures, the remortgaging the house, the not knowing how many people are going to turn up to your first event. So I'd get the security going, Dodge, how many security do you want? I was like, I don't know. They're like, well, we can't get the security if you don't know how many. I said, like, well, I don't know how many people are going to turn up. The police would say, how many people are going to turn up? I said, I don't know. We were having bar staff. How many people are going to turn up? I don't know. And there was no business model to follow, Dan. I had no mentor to go... This is the business model to follow. If you have this amount of people, they should spend this amount of money. Again, it was all the unknown. Now, at this point, you said uh, something landed on your lap. It was a lovely bloke from America <laughs> called Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Who owned this thing called Facebook. And that was... You might have heard of it. <laughs> that was an absolute game changer for me. Changed my world, Dan. Did you know that immediately or did you, you check it out going, what is this? It's not, you know, I've got friends in real life. I don't need friends online, that kind of stuff. Or did you see it immediately and think oh, I could use this? I saw it immediately. I was like, oh my God, this is a promoter's dream. You're telling me that I don't have to go flyering again. I don't have to be out on the streets. I don't have to be flying and talking to a thousand people, 10,000 and putting up. I could press buttons and get people to join groups. And I saw these numbers rising and rising and rising, 500 people, 1,000 people, 2,000 people, 2,500 people. I was like, oh, my God, I set up so many different accounts. This was like a genius. This was like a dream come true, this was. I was like Willy Wonka. <laughs> you know, it was, it was amazing. It really was. Um, 
because now I could sit in at home and press buttons and talk to these people. Those elevator pitches are a lot easier when you can put it out to yeah. hundreds of people at the same time yeah. rather than an individual. Agreed. Agreed. But I would never, those elevator pitches and the flyer and the posting taught me so much for mm. all those years. I would never want to change that. And it makes me want to teach these young promoters coming through that flyer and posting is powerful. But you need a lot of energy. You've got to be really relentless and like a dog with a slipper the whole time. There's no, You can't sit at home and go, oh, I can't bother tonight to go and fly. Mm. You had to get up and go and do it in times you don't want to do it. And I take it also taught you what grabs people att people's attention as well, right? So you know, oh, I've tried this opening sentence a few times. That doesn't work. So that trial and error, you've already done that when you're speaking to people in real life. So when you're putting out a post, you know, well, people don't actually react to yeah. that sort of language. Yeah. So I'm going to put it this way. Yeah. And did you you put those tactics? I take it onto Facebook. Yeah, I just I was just me. It's worked over the years, um, and that was a godsend, Dan. And to put that first festival on in two thousand and eight was so much pressure. Mm. I'd never felt pressure like it in my life. Because your house did, is on the line. And how did it go? We got four thousand people. We've got Hong Kong sevens and Dubai sevens, and nothing in the UK. So. There come the idea, 12 months of hard graft. Here we are now and it's an absolute huge success. Just to see this result today of all these people, these thousands and thousands of people turn up with the international stars and the corporate hospitality and everyone just enjoying themselves, lots of colour and I'm a very happy man. Thanks very much. And we made dun, 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 <laughs> a thousand pound profit, which sounds rubbish. But Melvin Ben told me, he's the owner of Reading and Leeds Festival and Latitude Festival and Festival Republic and who are part of Live Nation. He said to me, music festivals take seven years to break even and you made a thousand pound year one. You're onto something, do not change a thing. And I never forget those words. And, and the festival itself, what we haven't actually spoken about this element of it. Were you proud of what it became? Was it what you wanted it to be? Was it what you expected? Or were there things that you wanted to achieve and didn't? I was really proud. But like me and my personality is I'm always pushing for perfection. I'm always pushing boundaries. I always wanted to make something bigger and better. I always want to make a better experience for people from the moment they walk in to the moment they leave to the moment how quickly they can get a beer to the moment how nice all the staff are to the moment of the right music that's just been in my makeup for all my life and I'm going around writing notes when I'm I still do it now I go around writing notes how I can improve it for next year but yeah that was and you know what was interesting Dan I think you and I were speaking about it the other day is that year one was copious amounts of pressure but year two and year three were even tougher mm. I've never really spoken about that because you think year two, after year one, you're like, oh my God, I can't wait till next year now. Your phone completely stops ringing the day after the festival. I felt like a professional sportsman, a professional footballer playing for West Ham that I always dreamt that I was going to do, scoring the winning goal of the FA Cup final for West Ham. And you, someone had broke your leg and no one wanted a piece of you again. And that was a really, really weird feeling for me. Because the phone was non-stop for all these years, whether it was the nightclubs or whether it was the festival. But little did I know that the, the mortgage money had to be used for the following year. Mm. But the festival the following year cost 450 grand, 
which puts even more pressure on of getting more people through the doors to buy more tickets, to find out how much they're spending per head behind the bar, how much they're spending on food, and at the same time getting sponsorship in. You know, we had real big international sponsors really back us from early doors, you know, your Nintendos, your Worthingtons, your Carlings, your Adidases. They, they were getting behind us because they really believed in what we were... Well, they believed in... I guess they believed in my dream. You're selling them your dream. You're selling your customers your dream. I wanted to create a festival that myself and my mates would love. And people buy into that. So obviously you, you've had a proof concept. You know people are willing to come. You made a, albeit small, profit in your first year. Yeah. What changes did you make in the coming years to kind of drive that, not just like sponsorship and things like that, but when it comes to the content of the festival and your approach to selling it, what did, what changes did you make, big changes? Worked on the brand. I wanted people to buy the brand. There's lots of businesses that come and go, Dan, but brands, if you've got to create a good brand, brands can stay for many years. And I understood that from a young kid. So I was making sure that I was making the brand strong, making sure that people really understood what we were about, making sure that I added new sports. So it was rugby, netball year two, you know, year three or four, I can't remember, we added in hockey, then we added in dodgeball because my, my name's Dodge and I watched the dodgeball video. I thought, why don't we add in dodgeball? That'd be a laugh and got another 96 teams, you know, and that put another hundred grand on the bottom line. And all of a sudden I was working it all out. I was working out how much people were spending on the bar. And I was working out the movement of people around a 67-acre site next to the Bournemouth Airport that I was hiring. I was working it all out. And you can only work it out by doing. Mm. Um, but again, it was looking at the DJs, looking at the entertainment and creating new arenas. When did Viper 10 emerge? How did that idea come about? <laughs> Viper 10, wow. That's a whole beast in itself and... Viper 10 Sportswear, we created a brand. We come up with an idea in 2010. We knew we had 400 teams coming to our festival. And the, the landscape in sportswear was changing. It was going from your baggy rugby shirts and, and, and your netball score, as it scores, you know, mm -hmm. the shirt at the top. And, the, and a brilliant girl came into my life called Steph Essex, who's with me today, all these years on absolute genius and a very loyal a loyal friend and we got approached by a company called Stash and they were quite a cool company and they were like Dodge we'd, we can come and have a chat with you you've got all these 400 teams would you like to invest they came down would you like to invest in our company Stash and I saw what they were kind of doing and I knew they were in debt and I just thought I don't want to be a bit percentage holder in a company that is in debt or what have you and we come away Steph and I were like why don't we create our own sportswear brand? You know, people were now, it was a secondary income. We saw it as a bolt-on business. And we created this online business that we worked out what the, the other competitors out there, the teamwear brands and the sportswear brands, we realized that they were dated. And we realized that we had a really, we could create really cool designs. Steph was a designer. And we could create really cool designs and do it all online where you hadn't, you're not paying sales staff to go on the road and go and visit clubs or schools in unis to sell your brand to them for 50 grand or 100 grand where you might do, you know, a thousand hoodies or a thousand uh, tracksuits, all, all bespoke. We're like, why don't we allow people to design online? And back in the day, I would always design my trainers online via Nike ID. Mm. Do you remember Nike yeah. ID? And I was like, wow, you can put all your colours in. And I was like, 
Steph and I were like, why don't we create an online kit designer for netball and rugby team that they can design their own kits? So we did that and people loved it. So they've designed their own kits and if they wanted to know what the price was, before they pressed what the price was, they had to put their name, email, mobile in. That would give us the leads to then phone them up to create an even amazing, uh, even better design for them, for their club or for their team or for their uni or school. And it created this wonderful lead magnet coming through. And we knew that our competitors were getting all their kits, trackies and hoodies all made in China. We're like, yeah, but that takes 12 weeks to make it, get it across the water before they ship it, to land it into the ports here, to get stopped by customs and exiles and VAT and all the headache that goes with it. How can we find a factory that can do this in four weeks? Searched everywhere. Went, searched Pakistan, searched India, searched China, searched Turkey. So we found this most amazing factory in Lithuania. That was probably one of the best finds we've ever found in our lives across all the industries we've worked in. This factory, English-speaking factory, Okay. We'd do the designs. They would make all the kit that we wanted. It landed on the customer's door within four weeks. That was our USP, along with amazing designs. So you had a USP. Obviously, it's a very competitive industry. Did you see your USP as enough to get it over the line and make a success of it? Were you nervous? Well, again, it was, it was, it was going into the unknown, not having a clue, working it all out again. You know, And we made some mistakes in there. You know, We sent money to China to these two guys actually who lived out there, English-speaking guys. That's in another episode. <laughs> yeah, we've got that. I think we speak about that in episode seven yeah. uh, with Steph, actually. Yeah. Steph Essex and yourself sit down and talk about this mm. in, in detail. But yeah, you, you, you come across a few obstacles. Yeah, come a few, across a, a few obstacles, a couple of court cases, um, and we won out of court settlements. Again, tw 2010, you know, we invested 200 odd grand into this. Because I wanted a secondary income just in case the festival didn't work. But that put more pressure on myself and my wife. Put more pressure everywhere. You know, we're just moving into offices at this time. Yeah. With, you know, I think I had four, star, three staff at max working out of our garage. Freezing cold garage out the back. We're like, we need to get offices. You know, but we were just so hungry and game and ballsy to really go for it. And we're very good at working it out. And we're very good at researching and doing our homework. And we just saw a great business model that if there's 400 teams come in and they all spent a grand with us, they would have to 400 grand. Mm. And we knew that those teams would disperse to different parts of the country and they would be talking about Viper 10. And it married up beautifully with the festival. And I remember when we launched in, in 2012, all of a sudden, all these teams, every, every team was walking around the whole festival site with all Viper 10 on them, whether it's netball kits, mm. hockey kits, rugby kits, hoodies, tracksuits. It was just really... <laughs> Quite a, a surreal feeling. It was a, it was a nice feeling. It's a whole new brand and a whole new concept. You just have to look at the quality of it and the material to know that you're going to enjoy playing. And it's the lifestyle, really. People that have a love for sport. Really cool people. Really cool brand going places. Okay, here we go. It became a little bit like merch on steroids, didn't it? Like yeah. most festivals have merch that they sell with, yeah. with their name just plastered all over it. But but this was now merch that actually had a use and that can be used outside of the festival from other people. And like you said, these people are dispersing across the UK yeah. and promoting it for you. Yeah. Really good looking kits. Yeah. 
designed by themselves they can have whatever they want um and did, did it work like that straight away obviously did you launch on on a festival we the launched festival? at a festival yeah so the whole festival was covered in viper 10 from banners to on the big screens everything everyone walked you it was, it was sponsored by looked like it was sponsored by the whole thing was viper 10 sportswear everyone yeah. like, what is this viper 10 sportswear apart from the people wearing them because they would arrive and we would give them all their boxes of kit when they arrived yeah it was looking back it was a one hell of a journey and we the key to the key to that business was to beat the industry mold that was the that was my main objective can we make this business financially work can we keep our overheads low can we keep our staff to five we had these wonderful databases from the festival that we could talk to these people we had all the uh, facebook accounts and what have you that we could talk to them promoting viper 10 we just leveraged what we had, and it and it worked an absolute treat. Uh, now we've also covered a number of uh, difficult periods around this time, including high stakes court cases again, which I think you can listen to in, in episodes twenty eight and thirty six. I think. How well do you generally deal with with stress or pressure? I just crack on. Do you work through it? Like work harder, the more, more pressure you're under. Hundred percent. Yeah. I'm a workaholic, Dan. I love work. I've created my dream world i've created my dream lifestyle i just love what i do i love throwing parties i love putting smiles on people's faces i love creating brands i love being created i love building teams around me you know there's tons of stuff that i can't do and i don't see it as pressure i see it as a game so this had been obviously quite an intense period probably four or five years of really intense really intense mm. building businesses um court battles pressure hard work did your team take a lot of the pressure off at that period? Or again, did you just buckle down and, and get through it? I just got my head down and got through it. But that was the festival also. That was the time that we knew we broke the back of the festival. Mm. Year five really broke the yeah. back. I knew how the business was working. I knew the revenue streams that were coming in, whether it's from the bar, whether it's from VIP upgrades, whether it's from catering, whether it's from sponsorship, whether it was from uh, camping and glamping. The business model was kind of yeah. starting to bear fruit yeah. and feel feel real. And then we knew we saw yeah. a pattern. You know, I'm not in there to sit there and drawing graphs, and that's not my style. Yeah. And sitting there on Excel spreadsheets, I don't I use Excel. I don't don't even use a computer down, as you yeah. know. I've got me and my mobile. That's good enough for me. Everything's on there. All my contacts. And again, going back, my mum always said as a kid, everyone you meet is a contact, and I've never lost a contact. If I meet someone, I get their mobile number and put it in my phone. I have done for the last since the first time I got a mobile phone at the age of 18, yep. I still kept the same number. And I've got all the contacts in there. But that's when we knew we broke the back of that first business. But now we're launching a whole new business. And here we go again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you launch a business, anyone out there who's launched a business will know what I'm talking about. Mm. And if you're about to launch a business, you're about to go through. There's no shortcut. There is no shortcut. Don't listen to these people on Instagram or sitting on Dubai Beach drinking champagne on the on a boat and jumping into a green Lamborghini coming off there with chicks everywhere. That doesn't happen. Mm. It doesn't happen. Um, it, you have to be relentless. And I've been relentless all these years. And I guess I've also been obsessive. And I'm not addictive personality. You know, and I love a party, Dan, as you know, and we all have a party. And But I'm not an addictive personality. But with creating brands and what I've been through, I guess I'm addicted to the, to our brands that we all are part of today. Mm. And um, it 
being an entrepreneur, I've never worked for anyone. I don't think I could work for anyone. No, I don't think you could either. <laughs> no, I don't think I could. Um, and it's just, um, again, Dan, everything. Start off, didn't have a clue, and you just keep going. Mm. And I enjoy the journey. I enjoy the buzz. I enjoy the buzz of working it all out. Even mm. now, launching the new businesses that we've done in, in, in lockdown. Again, didn't have a clue, but we work it all out. Yeah. You know? Um, I, you know, I don't watch telly. I don't see that we're flicking Netflix. I feel like I'm, I don't want to be wasting time doing that. I'm researching. I'm having a look. Seeing what else is doing, what else we can create, how can we make it better? Another period around that we haven't really covered is a venture that you were looking into and the intention of buying the plot of land that Bournemouth Sevens is held on. <laughs> um, I was around working uh, working for you at that point, uh, but wasn't really aware of the, the ins and outs of what was going on. I was aware of something happening. Can you, can you talk me through that? Because, like I said, we haven't really covered it. Mm. That was 2015. Mm. But just before we got there, we had a massive court case that went on for a year around that 2012, 2013 yeah. mark. Um, and it was a David versus Goliath. And I wasn't backing down. And I wasn't going to get bullied into into walking away. And we stood up to them. And it, we got a, a huge out-of-court settlement. And that was... We've spoken about that in detail before, haven't we? Yeah, we've uh, we've actually got a whole, mostly a whole episode <laughs> on that one because it was a, a hell of a story. I think there's episode thirty six again, another a, a David and Goliath uh, yeah. episode. But again, Dan, I loved it. I loved it. My wife didn't like it, and people around didn't like it. But I wasn't going to get bullied. I wasn't going to get bullied and, and pushed into something that I didn't want to. You know, I was fighting my corner. Yeah, and thank God we won again. 2015 yeah. uh, was the year that we were coming into Bournemouth Sevens. We signed a long-term contract and the, 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 we own, we we rent 67 acres of land next to Bournemouth Airport and it's got two wonderful Astro pitches, got uh, four squash courts, it's got nine rugby pitches, ten football pitches. It was just a match made in heaven for us to create a sport and music festival on this site. And we knew the club was being run into the ground. They were getting hugely into debt. It was run by... Uh, a bunch of alakadoos on a committee um, and they were losing money hand, over hand and fist and we had the fear that if they went bankrupt which they were very close to going that we could lose our livelihood and our and our festival so we approached them and and made an offer to to buy the whole the whole thing it's not like going to a shop or buying something on ebay is it you don't just go up and say here's your money yeah. <laughs> this is what i'm offering you yeah a lot of work went into that, didn't it? Huge amount of work because I entered a whole new world then, which I didn't have a clue in, and that was dealing with a charity, a charity that owns the sports club mm -hmm. and what had gone on in the past, and it was just trying to unravel a whole web. You know, you had like about 11 businesses in within one. Everyone was fighting their corner, whether it's a rugby section, squash, shooting, hockey, all the different sports. They also had a clubhouse there and they had someone running the bar and the catering there and someone else running the renting of the fifth. It was just, uh, and I thought I could unravel it all. Um, and we were renting hotels and getting all the members there. And, you know, it was like 3,000 members there. And I was entering a whole new world, whole new world. And, and you're dealing with lots of emotions with people. I mean, you're dealing with emotion 
people who haven't got uh, have got an invested interest but have got no money within that it's very different to doing a transaction where say if you owned the whole club and you're going give me x amount of million it's yours sign the contract back and forth with the lawyers everyone's happy handshake look clean. in the eye clean yeah this was really really unclean but we were so desperate to get this club to protect our festival and you know looking back down i was probably buying it for the wrong reasons mm -hmm. it was a hell of a lot of money there was a hell of a lot of um you'd be taking a hell of a lot of responsibility on your shoulders trying to keep all the sports sections happy trying to run a restaurant and a bar within that business taking on their debt everyone wanted more investment to go in there for more floodlights more astro pitches more 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 it would have been it, it would have been looking back in hindsight it would have been an absolute nightmare hmm. sounds like a year-long headache that that yeah a year-long headache essentially <laughs> would have, it really would have been year round headache yeah. I should say and yeah. you know what I was pursuing it and I was pursuing it and my wife was like what are you doing we do not want that we do not want the headache we do not want responsibility I was like no I just I was obsessed on getting this to protect the festival and and we went into all the tender bids and da, 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 and it went back and forward and thank god for the life of me and for my family and everyone around that we got to the final stages and and the university come in the last minute and made an offer and the sports club did the right decision and sold it to the university mm. and that was a a wonderful feeling because then I knew we were secure. The university had a wonderful asset. They could have all their sports there, you know, their, their weekly sports. And it was a win-win for everyone. And we signed a long-term long contract and we've worked with the university really closely now for 15 years. They're lovely. They've done great things with the site as well. Mate, amazing. Yeah. I can't speak yeah. highly enough of Bournemouth University and the team up there. They're doers, they're, 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 they're visionaries. They get it. Um, and we work really closely with them and we want to carry on working close to them for the next 15, 20 years as well because it's a it's a nice it's a nice marry up, you know, mm. and we're promoting them across across the English speaking countries of rugby and netball, whether it's Japan, whether it's Australia, New Zealand or Hong Kong and Dubai, they all know about Bournemouth Sevens, whether yeah. it's anywhere in the UK people know about Bournemouth Sevens. So we're a huge marketing tool for them as well mm. and We've got a good relationship and like anything from a young kid, Dan, I've always looked people in the eye, shook them, shook their hand and let me see the whites of your eyes and I do everything on a handshake mm. and that's good enough for me. Listen, there's contracts in place, don't get me of wrong. Course, yeah. Of course, but the handshake's I guess the old as school, good as a contract. Yeah, yeah, and that's taught from my dad yeah. from a young age. He had, he's taught me loads uh, as a kid and, you know, respect and loyalty and look me in the eyes and being well-mannered to your elders and well-mannered to, to, to other people and... Mm. you know treat people well and you know and that's that's gone a long way so moving on from from that period 2016 to 2020 although still heavily involved with Bournemouth Sevens and Viper 10 you started to take somewhat of a back seat compared to where you were before what brought that on the festival was now a well-oiled machine and Craig Mathy come on board who's now our managing director who's been with us for 11 years who is a wonderful human being. I have a huge amount of respect for Craig on every single level. Very kind, very thoughtful, great with people, very articulate, highly organised. He just, he just ticks every box. He'd been with us since 2011, worked his way up through the company. And back in 2011, he knocked on my door and was like, I want to come and work for you. I, need, I want this opportunity. I see where you're going. 
and I had no money to give him back then. We were just building the team and and he was so enthusiastic to come on board and I knew he had something. Didn't know what, quite what it was, but there I saw something in his eye that he was hungry. And I was just like, mate, there's nothing here. And he, he, and I said, look, anything I've got, if you wanted to come board, is 14 grand. That's all I've got to give you. And he accepted. And But I did give him my word and shook his hand. I said, as soon as I grow and the festival grows, you're going to grow with me. And in 2016, he worked his work through the company and I made him manager director. And so he was, he was holding the reins somewhat when you... Consciously, I take it, decided to kind of step back a bit. Yeah, I knew I was in really good hands with him. Yeah, um, and I was in good hands with Sophie prior to him as well. But it's like anything when someone's time's up, time like the time to move on and and you know come new opportunities come and and but for Craig, he was ready, he was hungry, he was like, let's go. And when we made Flo and I made him managing director, he just come out again to a whole new level, mm. um, and that allowed me to step away. I was still on it on WhatsApp, but it allowed me to step away. I've never really into the day-to-day anyway, as you know, mm. but I just needed to step away and enjoy my beautiful wife and my, my newborn baby boy, Alfie, who at that time was like a year and a half old. And we just went traveling and traveling <laughs> and festivaling. And it was a mini retirement. Did you find it hard in any way? I loved it. I loved it because we were just spending lots of time abroad, having wonderful experiences, lovely food, enjoying life. And it was a four year period. Mm. But listen, when you're an entrepreneur, mate, your mind doesn't stop thinking of new ideas. And Craig showed me a a screenshot the other day. (laughs) I've seen this, yeah. (laughs) Showed me a screenshot the other day of 19 brands that we created and that didn't follow through on because they didn't tick all the eight of out of the 10 boxes that I like to tick when creating and starting a new business. But he showed me the list. Half of them I forgot about. I was like, oh my God, I remember that. Oh my God. God, I'm glad we didn't do that. So these were things while you were sitting on your sunbed. Like, yes, oh, on the beach, manifesting, yeah. creating new ideas, dreaming about stuff and then researching and looking and, you know, and, and fair play to Craig, he, he never once was like, no. He was. He went along, you know, along the journey. But the way I do, it, I kind of reverse engineer. It. I come up with the idea. Then I want to create a brand straight away, and I will go to create the brand. Then I work backwards of doing mm. more homework, and then decide whether it's a a goer or not. Yeah. So those four years were wonderful, Dan. They really were. But I guess that last year, when Alfie went to school, it was an age where he had to be at school. Those mm. first four years, he didn't really have to be at school, so it was lovely. Yeah. But the last year, I was like, well, we can't go away those dates because he's got school. We can't. Yeah. So I was like, back home. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then you were kind of forced out of semi-retirement anyway, weren't you? Yeah. When uh, preparations for the 13th festival were in full swing and suddenly a certain worldwide pandemic reared its ugly head. When did you first hear about the C word? When did the realisation kick in that it was it was potentially serious in, in terms of threatening your babies? I remember it well, Dan. It was March the 23rd, 2020. And like, I don't watch the news and, and telly, but Boris was made this announcement. And I remember Flo going, you've got to listen to this. And he said, there's a pandemic on the way. There was a COVID and Corona on the way. And I didn't even know what pandemic meant, mate. Straight onto Google pandemic. I was like, oh shit, this is real. This is real. It was March the 23rd. 
It was late May was our festival, year 13. And it was literally a couple of days before I said to Fleur, God, we're coming into year 13, unlucky for some, I hope we're okay this year, da 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 da. Because festivals were a risky business, mm. but also very rewarding. And when he spoke, then it was like, oh shit, this is, this is real. And then it was like, what do you do about a festival? So we gave it a bit of time and, they went, and then we thought we'd be fine. But we'd sold 30,000 tickets. It was a sold out festival. Mm. You know, you've got to think on your feet quickly. How are you going to communicate, you know, what we're going to do? We're going to have to move the date. Move it to August bank holiday. But it's not easy just moving a, a festival like that. But being a, an entrepreneurial business, we can move, move nimbly. We're like a speedboat. You know, these big corporates are like the big tankers that take three miles to turn around. We can move quickly. And that's how I like it. You know, we're not answerable to anyone. We haven't got shareholders. We haven't got a board of people. We haven't got, we're privately owned still from my, myself and one my, my wife, Fleur. And we had to make quick decisions. And we made a quick decision. We spoke to the venue. We, we spoke to all our contractors. And everyone was wonderful about moving over to this new date. But every festival wanted this new date, the August mm. bank holiday, because it was breathing space. And it was a bank holiday. Because bank holidays, you people have the Monday off, as we know. That allows festivals and people to take the bar money on a Sunday night where people get on the source. They're not worried about work the next day. So it's important that we've got a bank holiday. And we did. And we had a huge amount of support. But on my phone, I'm linked to info at bournemouth7s.com. And all of a sudden, hundreds of these refund emails are coming through. I want a refund. I want a refund. I want a refund. For 14 days, Dan. I was like, oh my God, this is a nightmare. Mm. Got to the 14th day, for some weird reason, all the emails stopped. All the refunds had stopped completely. We're like, oh my God, what's happened? Add them all up, what are we on? 80% of people moved their ticket over to August. 80%, mm. which just shows the amount of love people have got for Bournemouth Sevens and how we are and how we've been with them. And it was the most amazing feeling. It really was. Um, and it got to the stage where it was, I think it was July, another announcement I made. We're thinking this might last for th two months, that it will just pass. Well, who thought it would have been longer? And like everybody was like, oh, okay, <laughs> three months. A hundred percent. And that's how we were. We're all positive mindset, mm. all optimistic and, you know, we'll be fine, everything will be fine, don't worry, it'll be fine. And actually, we were told, you're going to have to cancel your festival. Then that, was a proper kick in the plums it really was that was the shock of oh my god what does this financially look like what does this mean to the people who bought tickets what are the refunds how much money have we lost this year and we lost a fortune mm -hmm. and that's not just that year's festival in jeopardy is it it's the festival in its existence yeah in, in jeopardy because yeah. if you know if things had gone even slightly different yeah it could have been the end of Bournemouth sevens agree how would have that felt I never felt it. I never felt it because it was the matter of what's in front of me. Mm. It wasn't, I'm not an overthinker. You know, I'm always thinking five moves ahead, but I'm not an overthinker. I don't want those people who does your own head in overthinking stuff. And I was like, right, what do we have to do now? Okay, these people, will you roll your tickets over to May 2021? That's the first step because we're thinking, right, May, we're going to make this bigger and better. And we got to January of 2021. Again, 80% of people kept the, rolled over the tickets, which was a lovely feeling. 
all the support we had and all the love we had. That was incredible. The, the hype around that new date was incredible, wasn't it? It was unbelievable because when I spoke to my other friends in the festival world, only 20% had kept their tickets for their festivals. Mm. This is how unique we were, you know, mixing the sport vibe with the festival vibe. And when we got to the January of 2021, Dan, I was thinking, happy days, we're going to get this away. And then another wave come through. And it was like, oh my God, please no, please no, not now. And then we were told we had to postpone this one. So again, we moved it to August Bank Holiday again, thinking this is our lifeline. We've got to have this festival and I was going to lose a fortune. No one wants to have lose two festivals in, a year, in two years. No one wants to lose their business twice, you know, because mm -hmm. we earn all our money on one weekend of the year. It's not like there's a income coming in each month. It was just one weekend of the year where you... All your outlays, millions of pounds outlay, and you see what you're left with, you know. Um, and we all just stuck together. You know, I gave you guys my word and Fleur's word. Looked you all in the eye and said, we're going to stick together. There's lots of events companies making people redundant. We all stuck together, and and I'm so glad we made that move. And another, obviously, a positive during that period is, although we kept having to kick the can down the road, it gave us a little bit more time and you a little more focus in regards to your uh, creation of brands and and ideas how does that feel to kind of be free to to think about these things again mate i absolutely loved it i can't tell you how how much of a buzz i've got over this period these last two years i feel like i've upgraded my mind i feel like i've upgraded created new brands i feel like i've got that another buzz to create more brands again that feeling has just been wonderful. It really has. And for everything that's gone on in this period, which has been really bad across the world, there's been lots of positives come out as well. Mm. Yeah, I think from, from my perspective, um, looking at, uh, watching you uh, during that period, you became more reflective, I think. You started looking back. Obviously, conversations like this helped. Yeah. Um, but you started to appreciate the journey and start sharing your experiences. Isn't that how the podcast came about? It's kind of you wanted to start sharing your experiences and other people's experiences. Suddenly, you, you called me one day and said, I want to start a podcast. Yeah. I didn't know what a podcast was. <laughs> well, that's what baffled me because I remember yeah. speaking to you a couple of years before about, oh, maybe we should get a live podcast recording at the festival. And you was like, what's a podcast? Yeah. And suddenly you're like, I want to do a podcast. Yeah. And then you'd done your research. You knew what you wanted. It rolled on from there and it happened so quickly. If You know, I might be misremembering, but for me, it seemed to happen so quickly. And suddenly we were buying mics. Yeah. Buying mics, <laughs> converting the studio, the stu converting <laughs> yeah. a studio from a, a a storage room into a studio and mm. it was just I thought again I was thinking this is amazing why don't we create a podcast what else am I going to do in this period you know and I think it was yourself and the team are going Dodge you've been private all your life why don't you tell your story mm. and I remember you know who inspired me Stephen Bartlett Diary of a CEO Diary of a CEO is his, and he's one of the dragons dragons yeah. and I listened to him talk honestly on the, one of his podcasts I was like oh my god that sounds amazing and that inspired us to then open up my mobile phone with all the contacts that I've kept all over these years with celebrity friends of mine or entrepreneurial people or sharp business minds or SAS people or whatever it may be. Yeah, it's well, you've been on the journey with me, Dan. And I wouldn't be where I am on the podcast, by the way, with 
without your support at every angle well i've enjoyed every moment it's mm. been a, it's been a hell of a ride yeah um and just even thinking about the fact that it's nearly two years ago is crazy yeah. and and we were looking around for a while at, at partners weren't we to kind of do the recording and editing yeah. for us um and i remember specifically you just looked at me and you said why don't we just do it ourselves? Yeah. Like, because they were charging in blocks, weren't they? A yeah. number of people were offering us these these um, so expensive. Yeah, and it was like I understand that if you're if you just want to get a podcast done, yeah. I get it. Throw money at it, do yeah. it, done, and and that worked for some people. But we've got the time and the staff and the skills and and the creativity to do it ourselves. Yeah. All we needed to do was invest a bit of money, yeah. and we did the numbers, and we were like, well, actually, for the amount of money they're charging us, yeah. we can build a studio. Yeah and do it ourselves yeah. and then it's evergreen yeah. um and you know if we'd given up after seven episodes like they told us most people do yeah it would be a different story yeah. but two years down the line we've upgraded a few bits yeah. but but we've got the same equipment that's right? right that's right and that just again that was that kind of disruptive thing yeah i can do it that way yeah. i could go to a studio and do it that way why don't we just do it ourselves yeah and and here we are it's amazing isn't it yeah and i think uh, again we had a lot of people telling us that Oh, you'll never get enough guests to, oh, to do it weekly. Mm. So many advice from people, you know, who you'd expect to, to you know, know what they're talking about. And we're, we're, we're like, I'm pretty sure we can. Yeah. And, and we, we said, yeah, we'll, we'll intersperse it with episodes like this, which is great. And people react really well to them. But I'm pretty sure we can attract guests yeah. and get people on. And to your credit, Dodge, uh, without blowing smoke up your ass, mm. I think what you've been really good at, and I think it goes back to, the fact that you love asking questions that yeah. other people aren't afraid to ask. Um, but it's that curiosity and even naivety in certain areas that you've talked about is that you will ask the questions that most people will just let go. Yeah. And and we've got really good answers from people that you haven't heard anywhere else. Yeah. I think that's what's made it last as long as it has. Mm. I think that um, the guests that we've had on have grown grown in stature have the, the the wide variety of areas they've come from sports you yeah. know military um crime uh, yeah. punishment all yeah. this all this stuff we've had and it started off with us just sitting in here with a couple of wiry yeah. microphones talking yeah. about your early days it's been it's crazy when you look back mm. at it it really has and, and picking up on there naivety in business is one of the gifts you can that anyone can ever have Naivety in business is powerful. Mm. It really is. And there's, if they knew that was, if people out there who were starting business knew how powerful that was, I think more people would start. Yeah. You don't have to copy and follow everyone. Do it the way you want to do it. Be disruptive. That's exactly what we've Break done. Break the rules. Yeah, exactly. That's what we've done. We've yeah. done it our style. Yeah. I don't want to copy anyone. We do it our style, our way. And, and you know, your production, Dan, is amazing as well. It really is. The intros Thank you're you. doing. I enjoy this. Yeah. <laughs> Little trailers. You do, yeah. don't you? Yeah. And we're lucky enough to have a, a full-time video editor, editor and who makes brilliant 60-second trailer videos as well. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's all grown out from there. And I think an amazing thing that's come out of that as well, through you wanting to share your story and getting amazing guests and, like, events industry guests in, came the seed of an idea for something special that's obviously launched recently as well, yeah. um, which is the event crowd. Mm. Um and again, these two were kind of building at the same time, weren't they? Yeah. How did that come about? That come about because I just, I knew this pandemic was coming. And like I'm saying before, I always feel like I'm always five moves ahead. And I, I also always knew that doing exams and schooling is not for everyone. It certainly wasn't for me. 
Um, I used to dread exams. Um, and I also knew that I was in an industry for the last 30 years that I'm passionate about and love, and that's the events industry. And I also knew that students were being going to university and paying £27,000 on tuition fees to do an events management degree that takes three or four years, leaving with £50,000 worth of debt in the hope they're going to get a job within the events industry. And I knew that you didn't have to have an events degree to get into the events industry. And this was my time to talk. This mm. was my time to let people know. So I come up with the idea of how can I bring in all my contacts and my knowledge that I've got over the years? How can I pull in 40 of the events industry experts, the leading ones who are in the world of events and festivals and weddings and sporting events of today? How can I bring them all in? People have worked on Glastonbury and the London Fashion Week and Olympics and Chelsea Football Club and this goes on and on. How can I bring these people in and create an online course, an online events course that gives people a diploma? They can learn everything they need to know across media, PR, marketing, building a brand, creating a website, putting on an event, building an event event management plan, the list goes on and on. It's huge, it's wonderful, and I wish I had had that, and that's why I wanted to create it. I wish I had that when I was growing up, because I loved events, but, and I was lucky to grow up in that kind of events world, entrepreneurial world, but a lot of kids out there don't know they like events mm. because it's never been put in front of them. They like going to events, but there's nothing out there to say, you're organized, you're bang on the ball, you're sharp, you'll be great at events. And that's what I want to put out there to the, to the world and it feels like you know this course now is my purpose where before they've been my businesses and now I feel like I've found my purpose because I've got a voice via podcast like this mm -hmm. I'm big on LinkedIn I'm on Instagram doing stories I'm on all these things now which I would never really be talking about this and I feel like I've really created a, a wonderful online course for that next generation coming through or people who want to change job careers who are stuck in a job. You know, I've got friends now of 40 odd are still bankers are still doing this and it was all cool in the 20s and 30s with the big mortgages and the big overheads. Now they're like, I can't stand my job. I hate it. I'm stuck. I've got two kids, but I've got a big mortgage to pay because I'm in a big fancy house and I've got a car sitting out there, but I'm not happy internally. You know, so I'm, I'm bringing something that people can change careers. And only if you do our course, it can all be done online. It's all visual learning. At your own pace as well. At your own pace. Mm -hmm. It can be done in three months. You get a diploma accredited by Chartered Institute of Marketing. That piece of paper will then open up to my contacts. You've done our course. The course is two grand or two and a half grand. And that allows you to go, oh my God, for that amount of money, I can change career. For that amount of money, I can get into the events industry. For that amount of money... Dodge is going to open doors for me for potential jobs around the UK. Yeah. It's amazing. And we haven't spoke actually on the podcast since it's launched either, which which has been an amazing feeling. I, I was relatively heavily involved in the early stages. Then we've got a team of people in to kind of specifically project manage it who have done an amazing job, by the way. Um, if you haven't seen the course, it's far better than anything that's out, out there like that's not bias that's just that's just facts um it's far better than anything out there it's far better than it needs to be the amount of content on there yeah. the high production standards yeah. the way it's built the way the ease of use is just incredible and to finally see people see that and 
invest in the idea and say, mm. this is my future. And now we've got all these people coming through the doors yeah. saying, I want part of that. And yeah. now they're doing the course. Yeah. How amazing does that feel? That's a lovely feeling mm. because I've created an, an idea. We've turned the idea with a wonderful team of us who we've employed people along this journey and we've created something that's an online educational course. Who would have thought I'd create an online educational course, Dan? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it's bonkers. And, but I saw a gap in the market, like I did with the student nights, like I did with the festival, like I did with Viper 10 Sportswear and like the, the podcast here. It's just seeing gaps in the market and just going for it. You know, don't get me wrong, a lot of investment's gone into it. And But again, because I couldn't bring people together in the pandemic and I've over the years I've put on 1,500 events in nightclubs across all the cities in the UK in 40 odd nightclubs over that period 15 coming into our 15th festival with 30,000 people partying in a field I love putting on events I love putting smiles on people's faces I couldn't do it in the pandemic so how could I do it mm-hmm. I can bring people together by the power of a podcast and I could bring people together and create a great experience online with an online educational course with an experience that people are like, wow, I feel proud. Mm. Well, the other thing is we saw that once things opened up, as they have now, the events industry would be decimated when it comes to staff. Like a lot of staff left the industry. Yeah. There are there are huge gaps in the industry waiting for young people to get involved with relevant experience. And and that's why people are signing up to the course yeah. right now saying, right, I want to get into this industry. Now is the time. Yeah. 500,000 people left the events industry in 2020, 2021 yeah. because events were on their ass. All of a sudden now, there's more opportunities for the next generation to go, I can get straight into the events industry or for a career change to go, I want to get into the events industry. There is not a better time than now to do that. Mm. You know, those people who were in the events industry had to leave because they had mortgages and kids to feed and schooling and what have you. They've all left and gone and become a, an estate agent or worked working in a bank or they're working in full-time at Tesco's or whatever it was. They had to make ends meet. That's created opportunities like I've never seen in this world that we're in. Agree. It's it's a, Yeah, it's incredible. And again, kudos to the, the event crowd team who we now have on board. Absolutely. Um, they've been incredible. Looking back at that, two-year period again one more time we've gone through some crazy things uh we've, yeah. we've had some incredible guests obviously you've co-presented with harry redknapp because of this podcast which was an incredible experience and again we've talked about that what have been your highlights with the podcast chatting to people about their lives asking them questions they've never been asked before or people who have the fear of asking knowing that the real and true answers are coming out of their mouths knowing that our podcast listeners are learning some really cool stuff that feeling is unbelievable the podcast feeling of putting these headphones on and being chatting to someone for an hour an hour and a half whenever would you do that Mm. you don't do it you get disturbed by being on your phone you get disturbed by the tv you get disturbed we're just in the zone and it's really weird because this is all new to us. I know we're two years in now, but it still, still feels, feels fresh new. and yeah. new. Is that you actually become friends with the people that you interview. Yeah. And that's the most bizarre thing for me. I've got a core of beautiful friends and family. We're all tight. But all of a sudden I've done 90 interviews, 90 new conversations and 90 new friends from it. Hmm. 
that you're on WhatsApp and phoning up because they've just told you their life. Yeah. They've told you stuff that they've never told anyone before. They've told you stuff that when they leave here, they go, oh my God, that was so cathartic. Again, a win-win. Mm. So I, I can't speak highly enough, highly enough of podcasting. It's like a hobby to yeah. you and I. Oh, 100%. You know, we're getting paid to it do a hobby. hobby. This yeah. is wonderful. And that experience with Harry, to be asked to be his co-presenter with Harry Redknapp was one of the best moments of my life. We were giddy. So that was yeah. the first few days. Like, it, it was unbelievable. It was like a week period of it, like intense podcasting, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we were pretty giddy. And what the hell is going on? Here yeah. we are sat speaking to Rod Stewart yeah. <laughs> in his gym. Piers Morgan. <laughs> Piers Morgan. Like the biggest interviewer yeah. of the world, me and Harry. Yeah. And you're producing it and <laughs> Harry and I are asking him questions and having a laugh and me and Harry are kicking each other under the table like a couple of school kids mm. thinking, what is, this is mad. <laughs> but then Harry's an A-lister. Yeah. You know, and I was going into these ones speaking with Frank Lampard and Ramesh Ranganathan and Jamie Redknapp and... Sam Allardyce. Sam Allardyce. It's the list just uh, went on and on crazy. and on. And mm. it was, it was Mark Wright. Yeah, it was, it was a brilliant, brilliant experience and it was lovely that they identified us after only eight episodes. Mm. You know, the guy who phoned up from I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here and can I have a meeting with you, come down. Would you like to be the co-host of this new show? What yeah. is it? Uh, yeah. The Harry Redknapp show. Fucking, oh, fucking, where do I sign? <laughs> where do I sign? Give me the contract, quick, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and that was a one, that was just great. Do you remember the first time you two faced each other? First time, no, I remember one particular game that'll always stick in my mind was when Jamie, uh, Jamie caught Frank. We, I was managing West Ham, and Jamie caught Frank with a, a bad challenge, and and, ja and Frank uh, came off to get treatment. And it was a my, you know, Les Seeley was my goalkeeping coach. I yeah. absolutely love Les. He was yeah. such a special person for me. And he said to young Frank, "Get back on and do him good and proper." He said, "He's done you there. You get back on and make sure you do him." Yeah. And I'm stood there thinking. <laughs> This ain't right. It's my son. Hang on, it's my son. He's telling him to go and do him. You know, it was strange. I yeah. didn't say it. What can I say? Les, oh, no, you can't tempt to do that because it's Jamie. Again, ballsy, not knowing what we're doing. Yeah. Just going for but it. Yeah, we can do that. We can do it. Yeah, yeah of course I can do it. Yeah, I've got mm. loads of experience in this. Mm. There was no experience from us. It was We were eight episodes of our own one in. Yeah. Of a thing called a podcast that we knew nothing about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, didn't have a clue, but uh, there's, there's a thing going on here. I think, I think personally, for me, one of the loveliest moments of the past two years is your opportunity to sit down and, like you said, speaking to someone face to face for for however long it goes on for. Um, but you, with both your mum and your dad, who have been such an amazing influence in your life, mm. and you having the opportunity to share their story with everybody else, mm. but also ask questions that you may not have asked them before, learn things about them you haven't asked yeah. before, and also thank them yeah. for where they've got you. Yeah. That must have been massive for you. Surreal, beautiful moment. I've got that for life. I lost my mum last month, yeah. and I've got that for life. That conversation I have with my mum is for life, on video and on podcast. Conversation I had with my dad, they've both had amazing stories. If anyone's listening, I'd go and have a listen to my mum and my dad's story. You know, to have a mum and dad who you genuinely want to interview, you know you've done, you know you've done well mm. picking the right parents, you know. Um, that was truly amazing. And my sister, mm. you know, they've all had mad, eventful lives. And anyone who comes to this podcast has had eventful lives. Um, but that's 
since obviously mum passed in, I go back to that and listen to snippets. Yeah. And I'm sure Alfie probably will as well. When, well as he goes older. Yeah, yeah, he will as well, yeah. yeah. And we've got somewhere where off the cuff one day, Alfie, my little boy, interviewed me. That's somewhere. We'll have to find that. I've got a couple of them. Have you got it? Yeah, you? I've got them all there, yeah. And there was, it wasn't planned at all. No. We just went in there and he said, that, uh, we should get that. He's only yeah. seven-year-old. He's produced a couple of episodes himself already. Yeah, <laughs> We've got a few episodes of... Uh, that's interesting, you know. Like I was, I grew up... From whatever you're around as growing up, you grow into. Whatever you hmm. manifest, you can always get. When you're growing up around this, it's interesting how much of your parents play a huge part in your life. And I couldn't have picked a better mum and dad and sister you know mm. growing up for all these years and what we've what we've gone through not many people get to do that and have that on the record for forever this is uh, all the stuff you've done in the past is amazing you've created experiences for people yeah but usually last a night or a weekend yeah these things are now permanent you know yeah. you've got your podcast an event crowd which is going to change people's directions in regards to their career yeah this is more permanent stuff yeah um which must again feel great it feels lovely. And yeah. I think the biggest thing in, one of the biggest things lockdown, when everyone kept talking about this thing, do a personal brand. Set up a personal brand. I was like, fuck, what's a, per what? yeah. what's a personal brand? What did, again, we learnt. What's personal? Okay, well, you've got your LinkedIn, start speaking your mind. Got your Instagram, start speaking your mind. Got a podcast, start speaking your mind. All of a sudden, by doing this personal brand, my profile around the UK has just risen massively. Mm. So I can understand why people are talking about the personal brand. It's your voice when you're not in the room of what people talk talk about you. You know, it's 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 your voice online. It's your whatever you write. People build up a picture in you, and if they like you and they want to do business with you, that's that's great as well. Now this is a big hypothetical, so bear with me. Um, if you could take away the obvious, you know, the devastating amount of deaths and illnesses from coronavirus and the financial impact on millions of people out there. Would you choose to do all of these delays and cancellations again, all this whole pandemic period again, um, to have, so basically have the personal positive outweigh the negatives? 100%. Even the money lost, the time wasted, the yeah. all of that, yeah. you'd do it again? Yeah, 100%. A massive game for me. And if this hadn't happened, Dan... I would have probably stayed semi-retired in mm. 2020, 2021, 2022, because when you've got a well-oiled machine in a festival, there's only so much you can do as the CEO and founder. You know, I don't come in the day-to-day. -day. I was hungry for something. I was waiting for something to happen that I could get straight back in the business and go, what are we creating now? I wouldn't change it for the world. I bonded, bonded hugely with my mum in this period. Mm. Knowing that when she got cancer for that whole year period on the phone 10 times a day, she was involved in this whole entrepreneur journey. And it was just, yeah, it was, it was, I wouldn't change it for the world, mate. Mm. I really wouldn't. Yeah, her, her, her fingerprints are all over, not just the podcast, but also the, the course as well, which is amazing. I agree. Um, and um, that's a, another thing added to her legacy, yeah. uh, which is, which is lovely. Yeah. Um, now, looking back at your journey from childhood tickets in, in the pub to whatever you've sold throughout, whatever businesses you've created, whatever brands you've, you've made, what defines your approach to life and business? What is the, the Dodge way? Just do it. What's the worst that can happen? If you've got a job out there and you're not happy in your job, 
change job. If it doesn't work out or you set up a new business, it doesn't work out, you can always go back to that. Mine, mine, I guess, was just having that optimistic mind and the belief, the self-belief. Because my parents gave me that as a young kid and I'm giving that to my boy now. The belief that is powerful. Great. What's next? <laughs> Mate, <laughs> hopefully I'll get semi-retired again. That's what. <laughs> oh, man, 2023. I just want to get the festival under the belt in 2022. The event crowd launched this year as well. That's flying, going in the right direction. But again, when you're growing a business, it takes time mm. to market it. You know, when you create a brand, you've then got a brand that you need to market and sell. That's working really well in this first few months now, which is great. That's only going to grow. Um, carry on doing the podcast. My passion is this podcast, Dan. My mm. passion is throwing events, putting on events. Um, but moving forward, mate, I just love my wife and boy to bits. And I just want to spend more and more time with them. And, and I'm lucky to be in a position where I can spend lots of time with them and create experiences for him that I didn't have as a kid um, and make him really comfy and have the nice home and have the mum and dad cooking the dinner mm. and seeing him with no toxic, toxicity around and, and, and him having that beautiful life. That's my, my, main, my main goal. Fantastic. Well, I hope we covered uh, most of your story here, mate. But uh, for anyone who wants to know more detail, you can check out episodes. I'll draw breath. 1, 4, 7, 15, 18, 36, 49, 50, and 67. Uh, we go into, obviously, their different periods. So um, you don't have to listen to all. You can pick and choose. Um, they're all labelled as such. And I'll put details uh, below. Either way, please make sure you subscribe, give us a rave review on Apple and look out for some great guests in the coming weeks that we've got a few lined up that um, I know everybody will love. Uh, Dodge, once again, it's been a pleasure. Mate, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for sharing thanks your story. For, yeah, thanks, buddy. And it's interesting you say about all those numbers of podcast. They're just deeper stories. Yeah. You know, we've touched surface on stuff here and um, like, like I am before, Dan, I just cards on the table, get what you see. That's what you get with Dodge. You get, you get what you see. <laughs> I don't know any other way, mate. And um, it's working for me. And and I like to help other people. And being open now and being public, people who send me DMs, I try to help as many people as possible. I reply to everyone. Mm. And that could be my detriment as well because the head's in the phone replying or doing voice notes. But I just feel like I want to give back to people. And always just that one little bit of advice someone's asked, asking for. or That could really help them moving forward. Amazing. Yeah. thanks mate been great speaking to you again cool good man Cheers, a massive mate. shout out to my mum and my dad and my family my missus and bless all of them and um, thank you everyone thank you